Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, this is session number 85 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It's kind of exciting as we head into December here and we're beginning to, to move towards our second anniversary of uh, Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, maybe maybe we'll even be in Rivendell by the time we get there. That, that it, Actually, it's pretty unlikely to happen, but we'll be close. We'll be close. We'll be at least approaching the Ford, right? And that's something. We'll, we'll meet Gorfindel before our, our second anniversary. So there we go. Um, uh, and yes, Marianne, I can see you there. And I've, I think I've got everybody. Uh, I think I got everybody all set here. Uh, so that's great. Okay. Um, very good. So, uh, oh, Amala, yes, I did miss Pontine performing the troll song. Uh, in the war hall. It's too bad. I'm, I'm uh, 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 sorry about that. Um, anyway, so tonight we are indeed returning to the troll song. We're going to look at the tro- at the uh, the poem itself. Look at the the sort of the shape. You know, we we, we talked about the sound and the general uh, uh, I don't know sort of attitude of you know we did our sing along last week. Um, I want to do a little bit more close reading of the poem itself. We're not going to spend, hey, I said this last time, we're not going to spend nearly as long as we spent uh, on uh, the Baron and Luthien poem. Um, but I do want to look at it for a little bit. And then I want to look back at the uh, original version of that poem, uh, the one that Tolkien uh, originally published in that uh, one of the geekiest volumes ever published, uh, Songs for the Philologist. Um uh, so I, I want to look at the original version, which of course you'll see is very similar. Actually, you can see uh, it's you know largely the same story, but there are some very interesting differences that I think that we can see. Anyway, so we'll look at that, and then we'll see. Who knows? Maybe we'll have time to move on a little bit from there and do a little bit of the prose that comes after the poem. Was this if we get wildly ambitious uh, uh, here today? So, all right. Uh, so let's uh, uh, let's jump into things uh okay well almost i do have a couple um a couple uh questions and uh, uh observations from the discussion board that i wanted to start off uh sharing um the root of the boot is what uh, class is called tonight the root of the boot is of course the original title well pero and podex uh is the original title uh of the poem uh but that translates to uh, uh, root in the boot, so that's uh, the root of the boot is what he went on to call it. Um, anyway, so uh, let's look at it. So first, I, 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 I try not to go back too far, um, but this is uh, from uh, uh, Johan Mover, who just caught up with us. Um, and uh, he, so I, I always like to if I can, I reward the people who post on the discussion board saying that they finally caught up with all the backlog and have have, uh, have uh, been live with us. Though, I have to admit, Johan, I, I didn't fully understand because, uh, um, actually, I'm not sure, how many, I wonder how many syllables there are in your first name, Johan or Johannes? I'm not quite sure. Um, but anyway, um, so I'm... Uh, 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 in your post, you said you, you like did the first 80... Uh, uh, 84 episodes in, it looked like you said you did it in three hours, which I would be pretty impressed by. You must have watched it at a very accelerated rate indeed. Uh, but I think perhaps I misunderstood that. Anyway, um, all right. So, uh, he has a question. So we're not going too far back. It's, uh, not further back than Weathertop. Um, 
uh, and I think worth uh, worth touching on briefly. It says, uh, I compared Aragorn's treatment of Frodo on Weathertop with his treatment of Faramir, Eowyn, and Merry in the Houses of Healing. There, Aragorn utilizes the virtue of the Athalos and calls them by name to draw them back, though he doesn't sing over any weapon, but I think he wants to, says uh, Johan. Uh, he asks Imrahil for the arrow that struck Faramir. Had he been smitten by some dart of the Nazgul, as you thought, he says to Gandalf, he would have died that night. This hurt was given by some Southron arrow, I would guess. Who drew it forth? Was it kept? Before, I always just thought Aragorn wanted to see the arrow to confirm that it was a Southron arrow, as he suspected. But now I believe it might be because he wanted to sing over it. Could this be some advanced healing method taught to Aragorn by Elrond, maybe? Does this mean that Aragorn is capable of performing magic? Uh, or is this an extension of his hands of the healer? Are his healing hands a bit magical in and of themselves? I know magic is a bit of a taboo word, but I will use it to distinguish between Aragorn's extraordinary abilities as a man and real magic. Uh, so this is, I think, a great question. Um, I have to admit, I always read that like his asking if the arrow was kept uh, exactly as you said, as just sort of confirmation, like, I'm pretty sure that must have been a Southron arrow, right? Can I, can I see it? And then I can tell you for sure if it was a Southron arrow. But I do agree that it, it is a little bit strange because he's just stated, basically, it can't have been uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a hurt given... Uh, it, it, it can't be a dart of the Nazgul, right? He's like, that's been disproven by the fact that he didn't die that same night. So, therefore, since it, you know, it's it was probably it was it was probably just a Southrun arrow. So, I mean, maybe he's just looking to verify his 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 guess there. Um but anyhow, uh so I I I I always read it that way too. The idea that he wants to sing over it is I think interesting. I'm not sure, you know, if we can uh necessarily prove, well, we certainly can't prove it. Um I mean, I think you can possibly maintain it. My objection to that reading um, is that I would have a hard time with the idea of the singing over the weapon. Like, basically, if you just, like, got a perfectly mundane wound from a perfectly mundane weapon, right? Um, would Aragorn, like, need to sing over the weapon? Or, like, would it help in the healing somehow if he sang over the weapon? That doesn't seem to me to fit with what's happening when he... Like, the one time we do see him singing over a weapon, right? Which is, of course, there in the Del- the morning after the Del- under Weathertop. Um, he, there, we know that the... I mean, we, or I should say, we have very strong evidence to suggest that that weapon in particular is itself magical, right? Is itself as a manifestation, a, a sort of an instrument of the will of the Witch King. So the idea that Aragorn would be opposing the will of the Witch King with his own, that like what he's doing there when he's singing over the blade is like he's doing a little miniature song battle. And we see song battles in other places, right? In Tolkien, where you have the will and power of, of one uh, uh, being opposing the will and power of the other being. That makes a heck of a lot of sense in that context, given that we know that the primary issue here, it's not about the wound, right? It's about the will of the enemy. And he's opposing that in this weapon was the instrument, right? Was the, the vehicle that conveyed that will. It is at least the sort of carrier and representative of that wheel, if not an actual manifestation, like sort of made physical, right, of that will uh, and power, as we were discussing, the whole dissolving in the sunlight thing. So, um, again, 
th- that he Strider should sing over that weapon in that context makes a lot of sense. That's kind of a sort of fighting fire with fire kind of thing. I'm much less convinced that if you like, you know, cut your finger, you know, slicing onions, uh, if like Strider would need to sing over, you know, your 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 French chef knife before, you know, he treated your wound. I'm being a little bit silly there, but I'm trying to, again, like a real, a perfectly mundane wound, right? Would he be able to treat it more effectively? Because I, I, I'm not convinced of that. And if it was a Southron arrow, right? And therefore a mundane wound, then, you know, uh, how, how would singing over the weapon exactly be, uh, be effective? I'm not really, not really quite sure. So anyhow, that's, um, uh, that's, yeah, and as Erokeb says, Aragorn doesn't seem too inclined to sing over the arrows sticking out of Boromir at any rate, right? Now, of course, Erokeb, you could argue that you know, it's too late, right? You know, I mean, no manner of, uh, he, can, he can sing as much as he likes over those arrows, that isn't going to happen. Uh, probably as soon as he pulled them out to sing over them, right, there would, uh, uh, it would be, it, w- it would be too late. But still, I, I, I agree. I mean, we don't see him have that impulse in any other instance when anyone gets a wound, right? Um, he doesn't ask if, uh, you know, Sam kept the orc blade that gave him the wound on his forehead, for instance, right? Um, uh, anyway, uh, so so I'm not convinced of that. But, Johannes, going back to your bigger question, is Aragorn performing what could be called magic? Yeah. Totally, absolutely. I, I, I think that that's and and although I, I know what you mean when you say that like magic is a bit of a taboo word, I, I could tell you felt awkward using the word magic. Um, but keep in mind, Tolkien did too, right? Uh, you know, Tolkien was also uncomfortable using the word magic, but did because he felt that there wasn't a, a better word. Uh, for it. I mean, I'm thinking here especially, not not just in The Lord of the Rings, and of course we've often alluded to the conversation between Sam and Galadriel on this point, um, but, um, but I'm thinking here in On Fairy Stories, right, when he's talking about that, like, way in which the elves can impact things, right? He uses the word magic um, just because he wants to, like, convey this, even though he's not super comfortable using that word, as he explains in the essay. Anyway, um, so I get your reluctance to use that word, but my, but what I would say is definitely, yes. Is there something beyond the natural? Absolutely. And I think that distinction that you make in that last sentence, Johannes, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, that you want to distinguish between, on the one hand, he's just like a pretty extraordinary guy, right? He's a dude who has skills and he's learned lots of things. He knows, like, this guy knows how to bind a wound like nobody's business, right? This guy is, you know, he can, he's, he, he has acquired many skills in his long and eventful life, right? But is that just it, right? Are the hands of the king the hands of a healer just because he happens to be you know, to have trained with Elrond and have practiced and, and, you know, no, clearly not, right? There's clearly something and nowhere do we see that more clearly than in his healing of Faramir, right? Um, There is obviously something more going on there. And I certainly agree that this moment of him singing over the blade or over the hilt, rather, um, uh, here on, in the Dell Under Weathertop is one of the other examples that I would point to as one of the clearest examples of Strider employing a power that is beyond merely, you know, mortal power. 
however that works and wherever that comes from. Uh, it is complicated. You can't just, it's hard just to say like, well, he's using magic because what does that mean exactly? It's always really kind of complicated, of course, in Tolkien to talk about that kind of thing. But is there something beyond that? Are, is, is there something that some people would call magical? about his healing hands? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is there is there power? Is there virtue? Uh, to use the archaic word that uh, uh, that Tolkien uses on, so that Strider himself uses on several occasions, um, uh, meaning power, potent, potency, ability. Um, is there virtue in Strider? Yes, absolutely. There is virtue, healing virtue in Strider's hands. Um, and uh, he definitely has the power to do some stuff, right? Um, anyway, so I don't want to get into, I, 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 I don't want to get distracted on a, on a, on a tangent about vocabulary and magic and what's the issue with the word magic. Um, but, uh, yeah, Kyle, you're absolutely right about that. Kyle says he loves how blurry magic is in Tolkien. You know, it's there, but putting your finger on it is almost impossible. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, and Kyle, I would say one of the, one of the times in Tolkien's writings when, doing magic is most obviously happening, right? Uh, where you can most clearly put your finger on things is when somebody is singing a song of power, right? When someone is singing something and something is happening as a consequence. So again, that, that moment when Aragorn sings the song over the, over the hilt is, you know, I mean, in my mind, it would be a, it would be a top 10 moment of an illustration of magic being used really by anybody. I mean, I, I'd, I'd put that on the short list uh, if you really want to. Like, for instance, if you were uh, arguing with somebody who was taking the position, which I've heard people defend before, somebody was taking the position, there is no magic in Middle-earth, right? It's just, there's, there's nothing magical. There's much that's mysterious, but there isn't any magic in Middle-earth. One could make, I don't make that argument. One could make that argument. Um, I've heard it made before. If I had to come up with a list of passages that I would want to point to uh, in arguing against that position, Aragorn singing over the hill would definitely be one of them. Um, yeah, now that's, let's see, uh, uh, Wired Pilgrim says, Magic seems to be more of a way to describe a true understanding of the makeup of the world. In a sense, yeah. I mean, it, it, when you talk about the makeup of the world, that goes even deeper, I would say. That, so... One could say that, like, through science, right, um, uh, uh, one, you know, comes to understand how the world is, you know, the makeup of the world, right? Um, but there's that sort of even deeper uh, level of understanding, not just an observational comprehension of what happens and how stuff uh you know, works and that kind of thing, but rather like why it works, what the purpose is, uh, to try to like be in touch in a sense, uh, with the music itself and with the very themes of Iluvatar that inform all the things. Um, I love those moments. We don't get many of them, but I love those moments. This is one of the reasons, um, that I really love the Avaule and Yavanna chapter of the Silmarillion, um, because I love that bit at the end when Yavanna and Manwe are talking about stuff and they come up with these ideas, which, you know, they mention these ideas, uh, which seems kind of crazy at first. Like, Hey, how about walking trees? Right. Would that be a trip or what? Right. And Yavanna says like, 
but it was in the song, right? She's like, hang on, this act- this works, this fits. And, you know, then Manway kind of communes and he like is receives a deeper vision and a clearer understanding of, uh, uh, you know, Wired Pilgrim, as you said, sort of the makeup of the world, right? Um, how, what's intended? What is, uh, how things are supposed to be? And he's like, yeah, no, actually, walking trees, that's totally how things are, totally how things are supposed to be. Um Anyway, so, um, so yeah, I, I, I do think uh, you can kind of describe it that way. Uh, Cecilia, you raised the issue about magic being kind of a, a dirty word or like an evil word or at least a troubling word from a, um, uh, from a, a, a Catholic perspective uh, that Tolkien was coming from. And yeah, I do think that that informs his uneasiness with using the word. Um, He's well aware of the fact that magic is, or rather, one common modern usage. And by modern, I'm speaking in Tolkien's language. Modern meaning everything from the 16th century forward, right, is is what counts as modern uh, to Tolkien. In the modern world, um, magic is, uh, you know, the, the, to, to be a magician means to be like summoning demons and trying to control them and making deals with them like faust basically faust was a magician uh in this modern sense um the occult jj exactly um there's a lot of that associated and that still lingers right like the people uh you know and i, and I knew many of them still do know many of them um you know I, modern christians who are really uncomfortable with harry potter because they're like it's about witchcraft then that's bad right i mean i get it like i i, I understand the associations with those words Words, right with magic and all that kind of thing um but uh anyway so so cecilia you're right that's that's there that's out there and he knows that and he even alludes to that when he's talking about the term magic and why one of the reasons why he's uncomfortable but it's not just about like that it's associated with demons or that it's associated with the occult um the biggest problem that he has with magic is that again because of that renaissance magic kind of association, right? Um, uh, The point of magic from the Renaissance onward is to assert your will over the world, right? Like to, uh, it is, it is, it is a power by which like this this was the point of science and of, uh, and of magic, right? Uh, Both, both science and magic born at the same time. And both of them were the same thing. They were, they were, intended both as techniques by which man could assert his will over nature, right? That's, that was the point, uh, of both of them. Um, one of them worked out, the other one didn't, right? Um, uh, of course here I'm, I'm, I'm citing C.S. Lewis's argument, uh, which I've always found very convincing having read a bunch of Renaissance magic stuff. Uh, but anyhow, um, so yeah, anyway, that, that element in it, is what troubled him more than anything else. And again, you remember Galadriel talking about the deceits of the enemy, right? Um, anyway, so much more to talk about with this, and we'll come back to this on various points when we see other examples and things. Um, but I do think, Johanna said, you don't have to be totally shy about using the word. Again, Tolkien used the word. Um, he realized that we don't have that many other words for this, right, that are satisfying uh, and accurate. We don't. We don't have... So he settled on enchantment as a way, as an alternative word to use, uh, an, an alternative to uh, um, 
to magic just to, to try to avoid that. But even that was didn't fully handle things. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kyle, it is interesting to see uh, modern sort of systems of magic in modern fantasy novels uh, being sort of more scientific, right? It's kind of interesting to see that sort of circle back around in some ways. Anyway, but I'm, I'm totally done. Totally done with that tangent. Um, okay. Uh, Bruce has a theory about the troll song. So this, this will launch us back into the text here. He says, when I first read The Lord of the Rings, I just assumed that the Tom, who is the protagonist of the Stone Troll poem, was none other than Tom Bombadil. I know there's no real reason aside from the same name and the fact that Tom Bombadil is the sort of guy who would have the audacity to walk up to a troll and demand to get the bones back. Anyway, according to Frodo, and also the note in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, this is Sam's composition. While our main characters did not know of Tom Bombadil before they met him in the Old Forest, Tom Bombadil was known to some in the Shire, at least Farmer Maggot, and potentially he was more widely known in the region before he withdrew into a little land within bounds he has set. Um, by the way, though, one caveat I would make to that is who knows when that, well, that could have been 10,000 years ago, right? Which would still be kind of recent in Tom Bombadil's economy. But, uh, anyway, nevertheless, it could be that there were some old crazy stories about Tom floating around the Shire that Sam heard as a kid and worked into his poem. These wouldn't be canonical lore about Tom Bombadil any more than the stories of Mad Baggins, who used to vanish with a bang and a flash and reappear with bags of gold, bags of jewels and gold, were true stories about Bilbo. But it would echo something true from the past. So now, of course, the first... Um, the, the first general point, right? Obviously, we have to say there's obviously no... I mean, if one were to try to maintain in a purely simple fashion, right? A simple one-for-one -one fashion. Like, obviously, Tom Bombadil is the protagonist of the troll song, right? I mean, if you were really to try to maintain that, that's a super hard argument to maintain. You really can't, right? Um, as Bruce himself went on to explain, you know, you can't, you can't really say that because, of course, uh, Tom in the poem has a has an uncle, right? And so if uh, if Tom Bombadil is oldest and fatherless, presumably he's uncle-less as well, right? Um uh, so, I mean, I, I, I agreed. There's no question that uh, uh, there's no real question that this is, in fact, some accurate story about Tom Bombadil. Um, I will, however, grant uh, to Bruce a certain amount of. Well, what's the word exactly? The attitude of Tom with his big boots on, right? Uh, no, the color not mentioned, right? Um, uh, uh, anyway, uh, the, 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 it's the whole, his whole attitude, the kind of irreverence, irreverence isn't quite the right word, um, a combination of sort of casual cheerfulness and indomitability with which, you know, Tom with his big boots on, uh, talks back to the troll, slips aside and then kicks him in the, uh, kicks him in the seat, uh, right. You know, to learn him. It's a little Tom Bombadil ish, right? I mean, when you kind of compare that with Tom's, um, uh, interactions with old man Willow, especially in the poem, right, where they actually converse rather than uh, uh, in the book where it's a one-way conversation. Um, 
anyway, I, I agree. There's something about it that it's 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 obvious. It's not right. You can't say it. just like you can't make the serious argument. Like it can't. It doesn't work. The Arkenstone is not a Silmarillion. Like it's just not. You can't make that. You, I, I understand the temptation to make that argument, right? But it doesn't hold up. The argument that Tom Bombadil is the protagonist of the of the Stone Troll poem does not hold up, and yet, Bruce, as you say, there's um, there's something else there, right? Um, it's it's not uh, it's not completely out of whack. So, Bruce, my favorite part about your um, uh, your argument is that latter part, right? I love that. I love the idea. Uh, because that I th- this is that's not something I'd ever really thought about before, but you almost have to think that that's true, right? And farmer, so like f- we know that farmer maggot hangs out with Tom Bombadil. This means, okay, so Tom Bombadil or t- farmer maggot rather is farmer maggot going to be out telling stories about Tom Bombadil that are gonna, that are going to make the rounds? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, you know, his friendship is with Tom Bombadil is sort of sufficiently close. You know, maybe his he has sufficient reverence for Tom Bombadil that he's not going to blab. Right. But his wife, his the other 14 people at his farm, other people going to know about this or at least guess, at least hear rumors. Right. So and and the rumors are going to spread and they're going to become stories. Right. And and at, at some point along, I mean, if. Assuming Farmer Maggot is not unique in Hobbit history of having encountered Tom Bombadil, then there's got to be some kind of local legends of Tom Bombadil, right? Especially in the East Farthing, right? Especially in Buckland in the East Farthing, you've got to think that they have some sense of, or at least have some stories which nobody really believes are true, right? That there's this fun figure of story and song, right? Who is probably named Tom uh, and who may have very little to do uh, with the real Tom Bombadil. Um, but I really like this theory, you know, that, 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 that should exist, that that should happen. Totally seems to be, uh, totally seems to be a, a, a real possibility to me. Like, in fact, Bruce, you know, now that you've mentioned that, I'm like, that would have to happen. Like, there can't not be stories, at least like inspired by Tom Bombadil. There don't have to be, again, real stories about him. Just as you say, the story of Mad Baggins gets, uh, as we as we're told, right, um, distorted over time. But, you know, when you bring that up and I'm thinking about this and I'm like, you know what, like he's got the uh, the cheeky attitude, right? He's got the boots. Uh, he doesn't have the jacket. No color of the boots is mentioned. But, you know, like, OK, it's I could totally see this as a story like in this genre. Now, I know several people are wanting to object and say, but Tom is such a common name, right? Well, yeah, but think about it. Right. Just 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 cast yourself back. Yeah, sure. There are lots of other hobbits who are named Tom. Right. And yes, one of the trolls was called Tom as well. Right. Why? Why? That there's been a Tom uh, who has been uh, potentially a figure of local legend since before the founding of the Shire. Right. Um, 
there could well be a, you could say there could be a cause and effect there. Good. Yeah. Sharon says, don't forget Tom Noddy, right? In the, in the spider song. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I, the idea that there's this, uh, you know, like semi-apocryphal figure named Tom or that like, just even, even just to say that over time, when one makes up a particular story, right. Um, when, 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 or when one tells a particular kind of story with a particular kind of protagonist, one tends to name it to call him Tom, right? Not because it's a really common name, but because of this sort of, you know, the legends of Tom, right? Um, and that could also explain the, the popularity of this figure could also explain the prevalence of the name Tom, right? Why not? Um, uh, Anyway, um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I definitely, uh, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, no, Bruce, exactly. I am suggest, I, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is the answer. I'm just saying, uh, Bruce, if somebody wants to come back to you and, 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 and do the, but Tom is a super common name. So just because he's called Tom doesn't mean there's any reason to think he has anything to do with Tom Bombadil, right? That argument can be flipped around on people is what I'm saying, right? When you have the, and I love Arden Crayon's comment, he says, Tom Bombadil is the er Tom, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. When there's the original Tom, right. Who's there when there is a, a legendary Tom in the area. Well, of course, Tom is going to become a common name right how could it not um um now i'd be careful here so talk thinking about a tom wearing boots and uh a trifle is suggesting that um uh trifle is suggesting that uh okay so since this story is a, a story of tom wearing big boots is particularly suspicious as that would be unlikely to be inspired by a traditional hobbit figure named tom since hobbits don't wear boots um, yes and no. They do actually wear boots. Boot wearing is not unknown among hobbits. I know the shoelessness of hobbits is something that, uh, has particularly seized the modern imagination. Um, but, uh, it's that they're not utterly shoeless. Uh, many of them do. And in particular in the Marish, in the East Farthing, uh, we're told they often wear boots there. Um, uh, Tolkien said that Bilbo wore boots for most of his journey uh, in The Hobbit. Um, that's why he's depicted with boots in uh, the uh, picture of him up in the Eagle's Eyrie, the painting that Tolkien made. Anyway, um, but um, yeah, yeah. Matt, exactly. Matt says it would also explain why he's not named Jack, who would be the usual translation of this kind of hero into English. Matt, that's exactly, that's the example I was thinking of, but I didn't bring it up, but you brought it up, so I will. Um, the way in which Jack the Giant Killer is such a popular figure of English sort of folktale history, right? The name Jack becomes associated with like the things that are associated kind of vaguely with this way, like with the things that people like about the stories of Jack, the giant killer. Um, so you'll often get just Jacks that crop up in other stories, right? Not because they're inspired by or based upon, you know, the, a real Jack or something like that. Um, but because they, um, um, because 
like that that the 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 Jack character, the Jack concept, right from uh, Jack the Giant Killer, uh, kind of bleeds over into other stories and also into real life, right? Uh, again, it becomes a popular name, uh, I think, in large part because Jack was such a popular figure um, from uh, from the stories. Even things like you know. Like, why was C.S. Lewis called Jack? It had nothing to do with his name. His name is Clive Staples. Uh, and, uh, you know, we know the story that one day when he was a little kid, he just came downstairs one morning and said, I want you to call me Jacksy from now on. Well, why? Why did, how old was he? Six, seven, something like that at the time when C.S. Lewis gave himself the nickname Jack? Why? Why Jack? Why not? Why not? It could have been anything, right? He was giving himself an otherwise sort of arbitrary name, right? When unconnected with his name at all. Why, why, why did he call himself Jack? Why didn't he call himself Ralph? Why didn't he call himself Hubert, right? He called himself Jack because I bet he really liked the story of Jack the Giant Killer. Um, uh, anyway, so... So Bruce, I love this. I love this concept. I love this concept. I think it's great. I don't think you can. Again, it's obviously not literally true, but the this idea of the legendary Tom Bombadil uh, really uh, kind of took root in my imagination when I was reading this. And Bruce, I have one other thing to add. Uh, we do have some evidence. We do have some evidence of uh, uh, something like this happening. In fact, so. Uh, let me explain what I mean. The second poem, right? The poem that Tolkien composed in the 1960s, Bombadil Goes A-Boating, right? We learned several things from that poem, Bombadil Goes Boating. Now, one thing that we learned from this is that according to the narrative of that poem, Tom Bombadil knows bunches of hobbits. Like, he, he doesn't... It's not just that Farmer Maggot sometimes comes into the old forest and nobody knows why or where he goes or what he's doing when he's there and he's hanging out with Tom Bombadil and then comes back and doesn't tell anybody about it. That is not at all how it works. Tom Bombadil rows a boat uh, up the river. Um, uh, you know, he comes down the withy window uh, to the Brandywine uh, and then lands at the docks and is joking with all the hobbits who all know him by name. And then he walks overland to, uh, you know, into the marish and meets Farmer Maggot, who's coming to meet him uh, at the ferry. Right. I mean, this he's a public figure. And there's like the, the kind of joking relationship that the other hobbits have with him show that he's a familiar figure. Um, so the way that they um, um, the way that they the hobbits. The Hobbit culture is, uh, you know, so Tolkien's later concept, remember this poem wasn't written until the 60s, after the composition of The Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien's later conception is that clearly, like, there will be stories about Tom Bombadil, right? There will be legends of Tom Bombadil because the people down there in Buckland and in the, in the East Farthing, many of them have met him, right? They know him. He's a, it's it's not uncommon to see Tom come out and, like, hang out with folks, right? Um, so... That's one thing, right? And you know, if that happens, so of course, like Gaffer Gamgee and Hobbiton will never have met Tom Bombadil and will probably disbelieve all the stories about him, but he will have heard stories. No question, he will have heard stories. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, <laughs> it looks like, sorry, I'm losing track a little bit. It looks like we're having a fight about hobbits wearing shoes. Uh, sorry, I mean, start a fight about hobbits wearing shoes. Um, uh, but anyway, okay. So, so anyway, like I said, I, I, this, oh, but yeah, Bruce, the other thing I was going to say about the poem, Bombadil goes a boating. 
that poem is a, like as an example. If we take that as an example of the kind of song that hobbits would sing about Tom Bombadil, right? This one is clearly operating on a different level because this is like from hobbits who have actually met Tom Bombadil and so who are treating him as an actual, they're not making it into a legendary thing, right? He He's not yet become, um, you know, uh, like Boomful exactly, like El Herrera or like Br'er Rabbit or some somebody like that, right? Um, you know, so it's, he is to the people who are telling, who are singing that particular song, um, somebody that they've met, right? He's, he's an acquaintance of theirs. Um, however, you can still see like the tone and the flavor, right? The way that they're telling the story and the kinds of, you know, the, the, the interactions that he's having with his animal friends who are threatening to knock him out of his boat and, uh, do horrible things to him. And then he in return is threatening to cook them and eat them and things. And of course they all, you can tell by how they insult each other, how, uh, how close in friendship they all are. Um, but um anyhow yeah so um the, I, the, the that poem as an instance as an example of sort of the spirit also it's there's there's something I, again it like i say it works right it works um and ardent crown that is a wonderful example you know that 300 years down the road gandalf and his fireworks displays are going to become legendary Right. They're already legendary. Um, but that the stories about Gandalf and his fireworks are going to be. Inc- and, you know, goodness, forget about Gandalf. 300 years down the road, Sam Gamgee is going to become a figure of legend. Right. Sam, the gardener who made trees spring up and uh, who, you know, the, the greatest gardener of all time, who grew the entran- the, en- uh, the enchanted elf tree in his backyard. Like he's clearly getting who was mayor for, you know, 120 years or I know it wasn't 120 years, but that's what the story will say down the road. Right. Um uh, you know, the, the friend of Kings and the, I, obviously, right. And Mary and Mary and Pippin, right. Who are each like, you know, five feet tall and they weren't five feet tall. Right. But again, still, um, so, so yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think that, uh, Tolkien is very aware. We see him being very explicitly aware at many points of this, the way that things become, to use that phrase again, local legends, right? Um, so again, love the idea of Tom Bombadil becoming a local legend. I love the idea that, um, uh, I, I love the idea that Sam's poem that he made up was influenced by these sort of stories of Tom Bombadil. Um, and you know what I think would be really cool, Bruce? I think it would be really cool if Sam were reciting a poem which is indirectly inspired by local legends of Tom Bombadil and he didn't even know it, right? Like that he like that Sam doesn't even connect the Tom in his story, who's obviously not Tom Bombadil, right? Um, doesn't connect the Tom in his story with the Tom Bombadil he just met a couple weeks ago, right? Um, I think that'd be really fun. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of suppose that Sam would maybe be surprised, uh, to find, uh, uh, that potential link. Uh, anyway, I really, uh, I, I really like that. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, that was, uh, brief. So that's good. <laughs> Let's get back to the text. <laughs> <laughs> 
we still have pose to discuss. All right. But thanks for those. Those were Bruce. That was that was that was brilliant. That was super fun to think about. I'm really grateful uh, that you brought that up. Uh, and so yes, Bruce, I'm I am uh, I am thankful to your 12 year old self who uh, just made that assumption that it was Tom Bombadil. Um, I had never thought that. I never I never uh, never connected those dots. Uh, so it was really interesting. Okay, all right. Let us return to the poem here. Um, first, uh, let's look at as we tend to do, look at the sound uh, and the shape of it. Um, what's the what's the meter? We established that before, right? How does the meter work? Oh, Brandon, yeah, great point. Fr- uh, Frodo, uh, in Brie, legends about Frodo vanishing, right? Yeah. And then going off with Strider the next day. Um, and the horse thieving and everything, yeah, that's going to make a great story that's still going to be told in some wildly uh, dissimilar version, right, way down the road. So, so sorry, what's the, what's the pattern here? Remember we talked about this last time, the pattern of the lines, the sound pattern of the lines. Uh, Troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he had gnawed it near, for meat was hard to come by. What's the basic... The basic sound? I am's. Yeah, definitely I am's. Right? And we were talking about how you have that very sharp contrast provided by the trochaic short line, right? Done by, gum by, which is so emphatically trochaic. Strong stress, weak stress. Strong stress, weak stress. Um, for me, and look at how, uh, especially the line before it, right? For meat was hard to come by. Uh, very strongly iambic line, right? Um, as should be a lion in graveyard. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the ver- the main lines are iambic. The uh, the those uh, the public the pub lines, right? Are trochaic, um, and I love how that works. It, again, it's almost like a it's almost like a signal to people, right? This wor- this sounds different. Because this is your part, right? And I love how that works. Uh, and yes, it's basically iambic tetrameter. Um, Troll sat alone on a seat of stone and munched and mumbled a barrel bone. Four beats pretty regularly per line. For many a year he had gnawed it near, for meat was hard to come by. Um, three primary beats in those shorter lines. Um, uh, b- the one right before the audience participation line and the one at the very end when it's repeated. Um, okay. So lots of irregularity, right? Um, but, but a pretty good beat all the way through, even though it's, it's sloppy in the sense of there being extra syllables and stuff. Um, uh, and a certain amount of syncopation that you, you begin to get the feel of in some places, but it has a pretty good beat, like a pretty good beat that you could bang your tankard on the, on the, on the table to, right. As you were, uh, as you were singing about it in the pub. Uh, how about the, how about the rhymes? How do the rhymes work? What do you see there? Troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a barrel bone. For many a year he had gnawed it near, for meat was hard to come by. Done by, gum by. 
In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, for meat was hard to come by. What are the patterns that you notice? Good, Fourth Dauntless. The internal rhymes are really important, right? They're, they're a very dominant force. You can hear those, right? Troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. Um, we get the, the three rhymes on that one sound in the first two lines, right? So the first two lines are connected at the end with the terminal rhyme, but they get more than that. The, we get the internal rhyme, and we see that that's um, consistent, right? We look down to the uh, to the further um, stanzas, right? Um, up came Tom with his big boots on. Uh, my lad said, troll, this bone I stole, right? So good. So, so we can, we hear that internal rhyme, uh, is all the way through there. Um, uh, so that, that one rhyme ties those first two lines very tightly together. Then what happens? Line three, we get a new rhyme. And you'll notice that it doesn't rhyme with any other line, right? Um, near. There's no. There's no. There's there's no there's no terminal rhyme uh, that connects with near. Near is again completely tied up with, um, uh, but it's 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 internally tied up, right? We've got internal rhyme again. Right for many a year he had gnawed it near. So line three echoes that internal rhyme structure of uh, line one, but it doesn't just it doesn't use the same rhyme. We get a different rhyme. So we we have a kind of like a b rhyme, right? Except instead of an interlacing rhyme pattern, right? We just we we have them like in blocks. We get all the a rhymes first, and then we get a couple. You know, so we got a a a b b is kind of in a sense the rhyme structure of those first. So we can see that we get um, we get a, a dense amount of rhyme, right? Five total rhyming words in the first three lines. Um, but it's not an ornate structure, right? It's not like one. It's not like a sonnet where we get this like uh, 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 elegant interweaving of different rhyming words. Nothing again. Think about the difference with uh, the Baron and Luthien poem, right? That we were looking at. Um, and think of the intricacy of the rhyming schemes and the repeated words and things like that uh, in that poem, right? Nothing like that going on here. Um, you can see. You can see that this is. Uh, uh, it's, uh, the, the, the rhyme, I think makes the lines m more fun. Uh, they, they sound more fun. Um, so the, the rhyme is dense, but, but again, simpler in its structure. Then we get the C rhyme for meat was hard to come by no internal rhyme and only one line, uh, only one rhyme at the end. And it doesn't rhyme with anything except the audience participation line, right? That's the entire point of that line. It is the cue. Um, it sets up the cue for the audience par participation, which of course is not just the final syllable, but the final two syllables of the line. For meat was hard to come by. And the mere fact that it... So notice the fact that that line stands alone indicates, like, this is where you come in, right? Cluster of rhymes, smaller cluster of rhymes, now a single rhyme. It's your turn, right? Add a couple more rhymes. Continue the pattern. Three rhymes, two rhymes, 
three rhymes is what we get, but you have to supply the, the final two, right? Once you see the pattern, once you pick that up, right? Uh, so it works really well with the audience participation there. And then, of course, we get the repetition. But notice here, and this is important, well, at least it's interesting because this is, a, this is one of the ways, as we'll see, in which the poem has changed. It's not an exact repetition, right? Um, for many a year he had gnawed it near, for meat was hard to come by, were the two lines before the audience participation. He doesn't just repeat those. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, and meat was hard to come by. What is the effect of the change? Uh, and, me, and meat was hard to come by is an almost exact repetition of the fourth line, right? The one right before the audience participation. And it brings that same rhyme back in, the two-syllable rhyme again, not just the one-syllable rhyme. That second-to-last line, what's it about? What does it do? What is, the, what is the effect of that rhyme? In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, and meat was hard to come by. It doesn't... Um, <clears throat> It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have any internal rhyme, right? So we don't see that same pattern. Um, we 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 don't see that same pattern uh, uh, repeated, right? It's just one single rhyme. But which rhyme is it? It's the A rhyme, right? It so it connects, but it makes. This is one of the issues, right? With uh, this kind of a chunky rhyme scheme, if it's like bunch of A rhymes, bunch of B, you know, a couple of B rhymes, bunch of C rhymes, and then we move on, right? Um, that li- that's the line. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone. And you see, like, the content of that line uh, does the same thing that the rhyme does, right? It recalls us back to where we were at the beginning. It does keep the story moving, JJ, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a summary, right? Uh, it reminds us, because, you know, we've just been excited and we've just been shouting random words, right? But we're being reminded here, okay, all right, so, you know, that was fun, like, done by, gum by. But in case we lost track of what we were talking about, let's remember, right? In a cave in the hills, he dwelt alone and meat was hard to come by. Okay, all right. Um, but again, notice how he now uses not just the text of that line to sum up the stanza, but he uses the rhyme to evoke the sound that was established strongly, right? Three rhymes in two lines at the beginning of the stanza. Troll sat alone on a seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone in, in a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, right? Um, we get that very firm link backwards. Um, for Thoughtless Citizens, the C rhyme is just the same word over and over. Are we allowed to call that a rhyme? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That totally counts, right? And again, this is not, subtlety is not the point here, right? Uh, you know, the uh, subtlety of wordplay is not is not how this song grooves, right? Um, and in particular, the C rhyme least of all, right? Uh, but of course, you have to keep in mind, it's not, the, the repetition of the word by, that's not the rhyme. It's the two syllables, right? D- uh, come by, done by, gum by, come by. Right. And again, notice the fact that we get a repetition. Um, sorry, my music tells me I have gate out over here. Um, the fact that we get a repetition, not only of that last word by, but of both words, the come by there. Um, uh, again, it, 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 it's part of the recap movement. Right. So it's yeah, I, I don't think it's a weakness. I think that's a, I, I think that's a virtue. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. OK. All right. Um, 
So notice the pattern repeating. Up came Tom with his big boots on, said he to troll, pray what is yon. Uh, for it looks like the shin of my uncle Tim, as should be a lion in graveyard. See rhyme, right? Graveyard! Do something with graveyard, boys! Caveyard! Paveyard! This many a year has Tim been gone, and I thought he were lying in graveyard. Same impulse, right? And again, notice the bringing in of the A rhyme in the penultimate line, uh, just like before with the almost exact repetition of that final line. So we can see the the new... Um, we can see the new... Pat, the, the pattern established in this new stanza, right? Uh, still very clearly. So we have, so it looks like we have the shape here uh, of the overall, um, of the overall, sort of the way these verses tick, right? Uh, poetically, uh, which is really fun. Um, by the way, so uh, there are some people who are resistant to like doing a close reading of the troll song. Cause they're like, but this is just a really simple song. Like it's not meant to be deep, right? Well, of course it's not meant to be deep. Uh, but that's not the point. That's not, you don't do close readings just of deep stuff, right? The point of doing a close reading is to understand like what's happening and how stuff works, right? That's what's cool. Uh, so, so yeah, of course it's simple. Yes. It's designed, you know, for like enthusiastic sing-alongs in pubs, Right. With people of questionable sobriety. Of course, um, it's not meant to be elegant poetry, but you can still look at like, how does it accomplish what it accomplishes? Right. You can still appreciate what's cool about it, uh, even if the thing that's cool is, you know, not elegant and not refined and not ornate and complex and subtle and things that can be none of those things and yet still be interesting to talk about. Right. And it's still fun to see how it works. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> I like that. Tony says these lines are like the, I am the walrus of, of, of Hobbit songs. Uh, okay. I can see that. I can see that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bricktails points out that all the best poetry is by people of questionable sobriety, which I suppose you can make an argument for that. Um, anyway. Okay. So, but having, having looked at the structure now, of course, we should pay attention to the actual content here. Um, one of the things that um, interests me about the first line is that Troll sat along alone on his seat of stone, which at the time doesn't sound very ominous, Right. I mean, I don't know about you, but I always um, heard that and imagined the troll sitting on a stone chair, right? Like he's got a seat, um, you know, like a, not necessarily a throne, right? Uh, but, you know, a pile of rocks or whatever it is, or he's got something he's sitting on and that thing that he's sitting on is made of stone, right? So he's got a stone seat. Uh, a block of stone of some kind, Finn. That's exactly what I always pictured, right? So troll sat alone on a seat of stone. So it's not like I'm imagining the troll, you know, sitting there like the thinker statue, right, on his block of stone. Um, but yeah, some kind of big comfy rock, Arrowhead. That's exactly it. But of course, we can see, we can see the the play, 
right? For Thalas, that's exactly it. Once we get to the end of the poem and come back to the beginning, we, we do see that seat in that first line could just mean the seat of his pants, right? Uh, it could be his own butt that is the seat of stone upon which he is sitting, right? Uh, at the very beginning of the poem, um, that, there's a, that there's some wordplay that's going on there, right? Um, that first line is in that sense ambiguous, but of course contains already the cautionary warning, right? Warning, the troll's seat is made of stone. It's not going to learn him to sneak up behind him and give him the boot, Tom, right? Um, so the doom of uh, Tom with his big boots is already foretold in in the first line of the poem, right? Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so... Um, I, I I think that's uh, it. <laughs> it is a cheeky bit of wordplay, Mike. I, I totally agree. Um, uh, yeah, and Matt, I do agree. I, I still don't know if I would necessarily call it subtle, but there is an attention to sound, certainly, which is very characteristic of this poem, right? Um, the internal rhyme, the alliteration. Um, you know, the, the, there are so many delightful lines in this song delightful not necessarily for what they convey but for how they sound like munched and mumbled i saw some of you guys talking about the word mumbled um like he's mumbling a bone um in some sense which the word mumble never has otherwise right um but matt i love just the the delighted play on the on the consonant m in that line right it's not just enough to have two words that start with the letter M. Uh, notice, like the internal rhyme there, how we get three rhymes, three of those A rhymes in the first two lines. So too, we get three M sounds in those two words, right? With the mum, right? So munched and mumbled, a barrel bone. So we get the M's and the B's, right? In that line. Um, and then we pick up the M's right away again with many a year, right? For many a year, he had gnawed it near. Um, for meat was hard to come by. We get again. So the repetitions of the M's near the, not uh, in the, in the second syllable, which is of course the stressed syllable in the meter and munched for many for meat was hard. So the first beat of the line in all three lines, two, three, and four are all the M consonant, right? Which we established very clearly by using it three times in two, in three words, right? Um, uh, two, if you don't count and, right, uh, there in line two. Um, so yeah, Bricktails, I agree. It's, um, uh, it's, it, it, it does make the troll kind of dog-like, like gnawing or worrying a bone, right? Um, even the way that that sound, that M sound, that repeated M sound would seem to invoke the, like, the noises you might be making if you had a bone in your mouth, right? You know, like, it's, I, I, I love that, right? Um, so in this way, Matt, I'm willing to agree. I would be willing to call some of these sort of oral effects that are built into this poem subtle. Subtle in the sense that it's easy not to notice them, right? But... I would still call them not exactly elegant, right? Again, it's still it's still different. Uh, it, it's not um, it's not trying to do the same kind of thing that um, 
you know, light as leaf on linden tree was trying to do. Um, exactly, Tony, just like the common uh, modern phrase, as Arden Cran was saying too, om nom 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 nom, right? Exactly, that, that M sound uh, we get associated with the troll there from the beginning. Um, yeah, Galandar, you're, it's a real, this is a really good point, as we see in stanza two here, um, uh, very quickly, uh, that the song doesn't set up the troll as an object of great fear. We can see this by Tom's approach to it, but Galandar, I, I agree, even in stanza one, right? What's our attitude towards the troll, right? The troll is our hero in a sense. He's who we start with anyway, right? He's the, uh, he's the protagonist as far as there is one, right? It would seem of this poem. Um, he's the one minding his own business. Uh, and he's also the one suffering in a sense, right? Meat was hard to come by, right? You got to feel for this troll munched and mumbling a barrel, but poor troll, Right? Oh, he's got us a barrel bone to munch and mumble. And, uh, you know, for many a year, he's been gnawing this bone for years, right? Because meat is so hard to come by. I mean, come on, right? This is, you got to feel for this troll. Uh, it's a hard world out there for a troll. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now, Finn, you're right. We don't know what animal this bone comes from, right? Uh, so, um, so, uh, hey, I see you there on, on, on Twitter. What's your name? Uh, oh, sorry, I lost your name there before. It's, it's long and complicated. I didn't catch it. But welcome. Glad you could join us live. Um, anyway, yeah, it is true that we ominously don't get told um, uh, what the the bone is of, right? And, of course, we learn in stanza two that it's a human bone, which might perhaps shift our sympathies. But it's interesting that our our sympathies are kind of placed with the troll, from the beginning, right? Um, yeah. Um, anyway, oh yeah, possibly, probably, I guess, a hobbit bone. I mean, is Tom, is Tom a man or a hobbit? Not really clear. Probably a hobbit, I guess. Um, anyway. Up comes Tom with his big boots on. Now, the bigness of Tom's boots... Uh, first of all, of course, we see another delightful example of that same kind of troll, uh, that same kind of uh, of uh, alliteration, right? The big boots, uh, like the munched and mumbled and the barrel bone. Um, uh, we don't get the same kind of pattern like the munched many meat pattern that we got in that first stanza. Um, but uh, one of the things that I find interesting is the repetition Again, the way in which perhaps the sympathies that were evoked are being turned on their heads, right? Um, the the near repetition. For many a year he had gnawed it near, we are told, in the first stanza. And then what do we hear in the second stanza? This many a year has Tim been gone, <laughs> right? How long has the troll been gnawing this bone? Uh, pretty much ever since old Tim, old Uncle Tim died, right? Um, yeah, so the coincidence, that, that repeated phrase, the many a year repeated phrase, uh, and notice in, uh, in, in almost exactly the same position, right? It's in, it's in the final uh, pair of lines instead of in the ones right before the audience participation line, but it's definitely one of those sort of repeated sets, right? Um, so the the kind of the frame of the many a year lines um, 
uh, really do kind of turn it around. And now it's like, oh, okay, I was having sympathy with the troll maybe, but, uh, but no, that's gross. That's not good, troll, to be gnawing the shin of poor Uncle Tim this whole time. Um, uh, so, Valori, I have no idea how Tom recognizes the bones, right? You know, I, I don't think that Tom with his big boots is some kind of forensics expert, right? Uh, and has carefully compared them to his Uncle Tim's x-rays uh, and knows for sure, you know, recognizes, a, you know, some old break or scar or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Um, we're given no cause for this at all, right? But there's another way right there's another way in which um there's another way in which this song is different from other songs right the baron and luthien poem the story that it tells is 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 important right that is the frame of the narrative you have to be able to kind of invest in that in the meeting of baron and luthien um and the effect that Luthien has on him and the effect that then he has on her uh and her putting her hand in his right you got to be able to get behind that it's it's you know you yeah you have to as a story it has to work right here no this doesn't have to work and notice there's Valoria as you point out no attempt right um no attempt to uh, um, make this make sense. There's no whiff of an explanation as to how on earth he looks at that and says, that looks like the shin of my Uncle Tim, right? It's not like he deduces that it's probably uh, the shin bone of his Uncle Tim because, like, he has found the earth disturbed on his Uncle Tim's grave and uh, suspicious tracks which led him back to the... I mean, it's just, you know, again, there are ways that you could make it work, right? There are, there are, there are logical links that you could establish. This poem isn't even the least bit interested in that kind of link, right? Um, we need to understand how things got to where they got to, you know, in other stories, right? Like in the Baron and Luthien narrative. This poem shows no interest in that whatsoever. So if we're asking that question seriously, if we're pausing and deliberating over this, but, oh, but gosh, it just doesn't make sense. Then you're, you're missing it, right? Like you're, you're, you're doing it wrong. If that's the kind of question you're asking. And again, you can tell this song is not interested in that kind of question. Go with it and have another beer. Exactly. Katriana. The whole point is that like it, and of course, because he's right. It is, in fact, the shin of his Uncle Tim, right? Um, as the uh, the troll um, uh, freely confirms um, in uh, uh, in the next uh, in the next stanza, um, yeah. Secondary belief, Tony. Exactly. You have to just invest secondary belief uh, into this little sub sub creation, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, well, Eric, have I agree? At least secondary belief becomes much easier when you're completely sloshed, right? Uh, I I agree. I agree. You don't really have to suspend disbelief. Uh, you know, it's easy just to 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 to, to leave disbelief. Uh, you know, uh, far away there. 
Um, yeah, let's see. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, Corey, you're right that um, the use of were in that last line is interesting. This poem is clearly dialectical, right? And it's designed to be a dialect poem, um, as we'll see from the use of uh, Larnhim, right? Uh, for instance, later on. Uh, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's part of the idiom of this poem, right? That it is in a rustic dialect and not in proper English. Axon, ex exactly good with that axon leave. Um, this, it's actually one of the things that, uh, so there have been a number of times I've heard that somebody else, um, I'm forgetting who this was now, but somebody posted on the discussion board a link to another uh, professional recording uh, of uh, uh, of the troll song. And, you know, one of the things uh, credits, one of the things I always listen for when I'm uh, uh, hearing somebody's rendition of the troll song is. Do they say Axon or do they uh, do they f f clean it up? Right. Uh, and that recording, I'm pretty sure they cleaned it up. I'm pretty sure he said asking, uh, in fact, in that. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Eric, have I agree? The uh, um, uh, pray what is yawn is not normal Hobbit talk. Um, the, uh, um, the uh, you know, the lion in graveyard, right? The uh, um, lump of lead. Right. Yeah. There are lots of examples of this, uh, of this kind of thing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Mike, that's exactly it. Uh, the audience participation bit, I guess the audience would be primed to repeat with any similar sounding words, um, consonants of your choice. Yes, exactly. So in a sense that one of the reasons that the words that are actually listed there seem so random and why not, you'll notice why I'm not doing any kind of interpretation of them, right? Is that presumably those are just placeholders and that everyone would probably be shouting different uh, consonants. Now, I suppose that part of the game would be to sing a word that made sense. So like cave yard, pave yard, right? Cave and pave are in fact both words, though caveyard and paveyard are neither one of them words that make any sense, right? So that I think would be part of the um, part of the game, right? Um, I mean, you wouldn't just, you know, you wouldn't just be like, um, you know, I don't know what, <laughs> I was thinking of other random letters, but every random letter I came up with is accidentally a word, um, like graveyard or something like that, right? I mean, it would work, especially shouted at a pub, um, but it's not as cool, right, as actually finding a word which is a word which kind of rhymes, even if it doesn't have to make sense, right? So you can say tin bone, thin bone. Um, that's all good. Bla to Blaveyard. Exactly, <laughs> exactly Lori. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because we all know what to Blaveyard means, right? Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh yeah, good. Anyway, um, okay. Um, lost my train of thought. Oh, um, and and okay, I've lost this train of thought now twice already, um, which is uh, back to the big boots. Um, 
that um, Tom seems fully aware. Who is it who is saying? I'm looking. I'm, I'm scrolling back now, but I don't. Oh, yeah. Gallander was saying Tom seems very aware that his boots are big. Um, this is a hint that he will become overly aggressive and will discover that his boots aren't quite as big as he thinks they are. Agreed. Once again, we can see, just as we saw in the Seed of Stone, that alliterative line, that alliterative phrase, rather, in the first line of the first stanza, so in big boots, those two first lines kind of tell the story, right? The Seed of Stone and the big boots, who are destined to come together in the climactic finish of the action, uh, are both spotlighted, right, uh, with alliteration in the first lines of those first two stanzas. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, good. Let's keep going. Okay, my lad said troll, this bone I stole, but what be bones that lie in a hole? Thine uncle was dead as a lump of lead, afore I found his shin bone. Tin bone, thin bone, he can spare a share for a poor old troll, for he don't need his shin bone. Notice that um, the troll's response is to argue. Right? He doesn't bluster. He doesn't threaten. Um, he tries to argue, right? And his argument is he makes two different movements uh, in this stanza, right? His first movement is um, that a bone isn't anything important to get worked up about, right? I mean, what are bones that lie in a hole, right? Uh, yeah, I stole this bone. Yes, it's your uncle's bone, but come on. Who cares, right? What be bones that lie in a hole? This is, aren't you making a big deal out of nothing, right? Um, wouldn't you say that the 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 sentimentality with which the remains of their dead family members are treated by humans and or hobbits um, are, are is you know somewhat strange and frankly inexplicable, right? Exactly, uh, Tormarthen. He wasn't using them, right? Um, <laughs> And that's a great point. Ann points out, but it was uh, it was his kin bone, right? That's the problem. That's the problem. And uh, you're totally right. That, uh, that I think the pub audience missed one there, right? Kin bone would be pretty good. Um, so his first move is to say, "Look, nobody again." <laughs> to Martha, he wasn't using it, right? Uh, he's done with it, so I can have it. You know, he can spare a share for a poor old troll, for he don't need his shin bone, uh, as the troll points out. But then that second movement is one of, of pity, right? Um, uh, he don't need his shin bone. Spare a share for a poor old troll, right? Um, sympathy. Sympathy for the troll, right? Playing on that same note that Perhaps we were playing uh, was were being played on the first one. Now I know some of you might not feel sympathy for the troll. Cecilia was pointing out that the troll uh, is almost certainly not uh, needy, but just lazy, right? Uh, uh, meat doesn't seem as hard to come by as all that, right? Uh, that it you know it's been years and years since he's been able successfully to get food. There's not a famine in the land. Um, it's just 
<laughs> he doesn't seem to be bothered, right? Um, so I get that. I get that. I'm not. I'm not saying that that like true and genuine sympathy is being called for. All I'm saying is it's interesting that uh, when we get introduced to, to the troll, we don't get introduced to him as terrifying, horrifying creature. We get introduced to him as poor, old, lonely, hungry creature, right? Um, and maybe it's his own fault, but still, poor old hungry creature, right? And he plays that card, too. Um, uh, he can spare a share for a poor old troll. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Oh, Tony, you're just reminding me. Tony says at least you didn't need half a village to get fed. Right, exactly. It could be worse, right? Lazy troll who can't be bothered to go out and eat half a village uh, is better, presumably, right? More worthy of sympathy, perhaps, than uh, uh, the go-getters among the troll community, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I, but again, it's notice what, what, what we're not given is fear, right? Uh, uh, intimidating presence from the troll. Um, looking at the variations, um, interesting that Tolkien changed the word carcass, the sea rhyme. He changes the sea rhyme from shin bone to carcass, right? Afore I found his carcass, hark ye, mark ye, he can spare a share. Uh, he can uh, spare a bone for a poor old troll, for he's got no use for his carcass, is the way that he turns the line uh, later on when he records the song. Um, I think the use of carcass there is actually... I think it reduced, in my opinion, it reduces... Well, in my opinion, it reduces pretty strongly any sympathy that we might have for the troll, right? Um, to use the word carcass, like invoking the image of the dead body of the uncle, right? He wasn't using his dead body, right? So I can have it, right? Um, whereas the original troll here, or at least the published troll, Sam's published troll, um, is saying he can p spare a share, Right? Uh, that's why he doesn't say a share. He says a bone. But anyway, he can spare a share, right? He he doesn't need a shin bone, right? Surely he can. He wasn't using that, right? So, you know, just this idea of like, well, I'm only. It's only just a shin bone, um, which doesn't fly when he's like, I found his carcass, man, right? You know, and presumably the shin bone is I don't know what, like the last bit of the carcass to go down the hatch. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And yes, fourth dauntless carcass is a word that we tend to use of animals, not people. Um, uh, not never, but rarely uh, do we use uh, do we use the word carcass uh, there. It does sort of suggest and one of the places where we will use carcass is for like a dead animal that uh, like when we go hunting, right, and kill an animal, we talk about the carcass and butchering the carcass of an animal. Um, so Again, another thing which fairly sharply reduces the sympathy, right, when showing the kind of general attitude that the troll has towards uh, uh, towards the human and or hobbitish body of uh, poor Uncle Tim. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Tony, I agreed. This image of trolls is much more like the version in The Hobbit than the troll they meet in Moria. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, this is a much more fun troll. Again, I, one of the things that I think is important about this is that his move is to uh, is to is to argue, right? Um, not to not to threaten, not to you know. First attempt to beat Tom into a pulp. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and good. Erica was just pointing out. Um, this is probably written by a Sam whose only knowledge of trolls was the comical tale of Bilbo's trolls that were easily defeated by Gandalf. Um, uh, and Gandalf, of course, also wears big boots. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the, the, this is certainly in the idiom of the Hobbit trolls, no question. Um, if this troll were to meet another troll, presumably they would call each other perfectly true and applicable names in very loud voices, right? Um, absolutely. Um, okay, anyway, let's keep going. Said Tom, I don't see why the likes of thee without axe and leave should go making free with a shank or the shin of my father's kin, so hand the old bone over. Rover, Trover, though dead he be, it belongs to he, so hand the old bone over. Um... couple phrases that really jump out to me in this stanza. And we talked about some of the dialectical uh, bits, especially Axon. But um, the likes of thee is uh, one of the ones that which jumps out at me most in this stanza. Um, as if it's not an absolute objection to the disruption of his uncle's bones. It's the fact that it was done by somebody like that, right? as if there were some kind of social exclusion, right? That um, uh, that oops, sorry, just uh, was just in the nick of not in time, which um, uh, <laughs> is not in the nick of time there. Um, so, uh, yeah, who are you to take that bone? Um, <laughs> Eric Hebb says, yes, I'm afraid trolls do act like that. Yes, once again, we can see that perhaps that influence not only of Bilbo's story, but of Bilbo's storytelling style, right? Uh, the trolls in The Hobbit are criticized for their um, not drawing room uh, language, right? And behavior, wiping their mouths on their sleeves and other such barbaric carryings on. Uh the idea that Tom sort of looks down on the troll socially, right, is uh, is kind of fun. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony, uh, Tony says, I want to know what it would have looked like for the troll to ask permission to munch on his uncle's body without axe and leave, right? Exactly. Be like, like, do you have to ask for like a uh, 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 formal written consent? You know, like if you want to show uh, like baseball or football highlights in America um, without expressed written consent. Is that what he needed? Expressed written consent? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the other thing, of course, that jumps out at me at this stanza is Tom demanding the return of the bone. 
this is not about like how could you possibly have done this like oh the atrocity that has been committed he's like give it back right you stole that given but you're making free with the shank of the shin of my father's you're making free with it like you're using something that belongs to us it's not about like the personal offense uh again there's no like we will punish you for this or it's just um um you um uh you give that back. You've taken. Some, you're making use of something that rightfully belongs to us. So on the one hand, we get this sort of you know the outrageous behavior of the troll, right? The 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 the. So, but one of the things that's funny, I think, about this whole thing, is that Tom is, on the one hand, absurdly sensitive to the uh, provenance of the bone, Valoria, as you were pointing out before. Like he knows that it's his uncle's bone somehow. He can tell by sight. And yet, so he's kind of like offended by that, but he's not offended enough. I mean, it's part, it seems to me part of the joke, right? Um, that he's not horrified. He's just like, come on now, give the bone back. That's not appropriate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he does, neither the troll nor Tom respond as we would expect. Again, you expect, you know, if you come up to a troll and you say, hey, troll, that's my uncle's shin bone, you would expect that the um, uh, the response from the troll would be something like, right? But that's not what we get, right? We get logical argument from him and, and uh, an appeal to pity. Uh, and with Tom, you would expect like, oh, this is a horrible, right? Oh no, my poor uncle whose memory has been degraded by this monster. Uh, no, he's just like, give me back the bone, <laughs> right? Uh, hand, 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 hand it over, right? I mean, as if, uh, you know, as if, uh, you know, he's a, a teacher asking you to spit out your chewing gum. Um, <laughs> you shin mumbler. That's a really good insult, but more. I like that shin mumbler. Um, uh, anyway, so, um, I, I think that's, uh, the, 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 the variations of both of their actions from what we would expect, I do think is part of the, is part of the fun. And again, just that the likes of the, right. Um, yeah, monster, sure. You know, eater of, you know, human and or hobbitly flesh. Yeah. Mm-hmm, sure. Right. Uh, apparent scavenger of the dead. Gross. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, but no, apparently it's, you know, again, the, 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 the double sense of that line, um, which does not seem to be freighted with horror, uh, but rather merely with disdain or even snobbery, um, outrage of like, you know, of the, uh, I didn't give you permission to, you know, hunt in my fields or to, you know, be on my swing set kind of kind of reaction uh from tom here um for a couple of pins says troll and grins i'll eat thee too and gnaw thy shins a bit of fresh meat will go down sweet i'll try my teeth on thee now he now see now i'm tired of gnawing old bones and skins i've a mind to dine on thee now i love the uh, sort of irony of the word dine, right? That very formal and sort of inappropriate, the idea of a, of a, 
uh, a troll saying, I'm prepared to dine upon you, right, uh, is, you know, the, again, the delightful contrast between the actual diction that he's using and the thing that he's describing with that diction, right? I shall prepare to sup upon your person, right? It's, uh, again, not the language that you would expect the troll to use. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, good. Both Tormarthen and Arrowhead at the same time were saying they always imagined uh, the troll uh, tying a, rapkin, a, a napkin around his neck or tucking it into his collar here uh, as he's uh, as he's doing this. Yes, the, the dine word does suggest that kind of formality, which, of course, as we know from Bilbo's stories, is exactly the way that trolls do not behave, right? Um, they drink uh, They drink beer straight out of jugs and wipe their mouths on their sleeves. Um, yeah, um, a bit of fresh meat will go down sweet. I'll try my teeth on thee now. Now, you'll notice that Tolkien again changes the C rhyme in this stanza when he recorded it. Um, thee'll be a nice change from thine uncle instead of I'll try my teeth on thee now. Um, leading us, of course, to then do something with sunkle and drunkle, um, which I think, of course, as C-Rhyme goes, for an audience participation line, Nuncle is much funnier than the now, right? The possibilities, and Sunkle and Drunkle are both good ones, right? Sunk and Drunk being two good words. Drunkle being particularly likely to be shouted out, right? Uh, because it particularly uh, it particularly works, right? Um, it's... Uh, um, and I don't just mean because the audience themselves are drunk. I just mean uh, as an insult to his uncle, right? Uh, you know, yeah, I'm. Uh, yes, I've eaten your your. I ate your uncle, right? I I ate your drunkle, uh, your drunk uncle. Uh, he was also a sunkle, right? Because you buried him into the ground. So the 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 wordplay in the nonsense words here is 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 super fun. So I can totally see why he changed this one. This is that's actually my favorite change of all of the changes that he made uh, for the sung version. Um, and uh, Eric Hebb, absolutely, I think that there is a, a play on sweetmeats, right? Sweetmeat meaning candy, um, you know, as we would say in America. Um, uh, so, yes, a bit of fresh meat will go down sweet, right? Like it will, it'll be a treat, right? Um, exactly. Um, and Mike says he would he would probably have, sh- uh, have shouted stunkle uh, <laughs> if uh, if he was there. That that also would work. That also would work. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, you know, it really I uh Tony, you're right, everybody does seem to have at least one drunkle at Christmas, right? Um yeah, agreed. Agreed. In fact, really that kind of seems like a a, a nice little um uh portmanteau word which really could be incorporated into the language, right? Like don't be a drunkle. Uh I I mean it kind of seems to work to me, really. Um but, um, yeah, oh, yeah, no, not sweet meats, meaning the tender parts of the throat. No, 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 I don't think so. Um, uh, I think, I, I don't think that word was used in England for those. Yeah, it would be a good t-shirt. Don't be a drunkle. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Um. 
You named your in-league steed Drunkle? Belongs well? That's pretty good. That's very good. Um, yeah, yeah. You already used the word drunkle, Tony. Good. You're way ahead of us, right? We totally need to. In this holiday season, let us make a concerted attempt to, to, to bring the word drunkle uh, into uh, into modern usage. I think it really it really needs to happen, um, uh, and could totally be a t-shirt. Valor, you making notes there? I, I'm 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 kind of seeing this, right? <laughs> Don't be a drunkle t-shirts. It could ha- Let's make that happen, Valori. Uh, <laughs> are you sketching? I hope you're sketching, <laughs> Valori, right now. Um, anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> let's keep going. I'm not making swift progress here, as is not to be not not surprising. Um, but just as he thought his dinner was caught, he found his hands had a hold of naught. Before he could mind, Tom slipped behind and gave him the boot to larn him. Warn him, darn him, a bump of the boot on the seat Tom thought would be the way to larn him. Um, again, I love the collection of alliterations, right? Once again, we have that being consistently... Um, uh, clustering together in these same patterns, right? Bump of the boot is such a wonderful phrase. A bump of the boot on the seat, Tom thought, would be... Even just be is a very small word, right? But the way that it picks up again because it's in the stressed position would be the way to larn him. Um, a bump of the boot would be, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and just as we have uh, uh, his hands had a hold, hands had a hold, we get three H's in a row there in the second line, right? Um, just as he thought his dinner was caught, he found his hands had a hold of naught. Before he could mind, Tom slipped behind. Um, and of course, slipping behind, right? And we've got, you know, again, we're with the behind jokes. Um, uh, yeah, oh, Bruce, I th- those first two lines are, are so rich. I agree. They're some of the most fun. Um, just as he thought his dinner was caught, he found his hands had a hold of naught. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice how, once again, the, this song has just made two comic turns. Um, one which, again, I saw somebody point this out, but it flew by before I paid attention to it at the time. Um, in that, f- how many stanzas are we in? Stanza number five? We've had three person. Yes. In stanza five, the troll turns from comical, even pitiable figure to real threat, right? We have this sudden pivot where the troll is now threatening to eat him. Now he's finally acting like a troll. We get like the troll reveal, right? As he takes off the pitiable troll mask and he's, he's actually a hungry troll, right? Which, of course was what we were told about him in the very first stanza, of course, right? Um, but then in stanza six, we have that the, the, the turnaround again, where just as, it, you know, just as he thought his dinner was caught, just as we thought this was going to be a real uh, action scene, right? Just as we thought that this was uh, actually turning into, um, uh, you know, and then the troll pounced on him and ate him up, right? We have, no, it, it, uh, uh, it goes into... Uh, 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 slapstick mode, Arrowhead, exactly as you said, which of course is your, I assume, implying you're going to make sure you slap with the stick, right? That's where, uh, absolutely. Anyway, yeah. So, 
Um, yeah, so it 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 seems to pivot to real action, real threat, right? Real danger, and then immediately pivots away again um, with uh, Tom slipping behind and giving him the boot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, warn him, darn him, a bump of the boot on the seat, Tom thought, would be the way to learn him. Um, I can't ever think of the you know the the use of the word learn uh in this context without thinking of um without thinking of uh uh sorry what's his name badger uh in um uh in the willows um when he says they're going to go learn the weasels oh well learn him he doesn't say learn he says learn uh but we're going to learn him and, uh, you know, he's correct. Like, oh, what, Badger, isn't that improper English? Shouldn't you say we're going to teach them? And Badger's like, no, we're not going to teach them. We're going to learn them. Uh, I, 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 I can never forget that, uh, that line. And, of course, I know how uh, I, The Wind in the Wills is a, a big book, uh, both for Tolkien and Lewis. Um, yeah. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. Warn, darn, and larn are all clearly rhyming, right? So it does, um, it's not worn, right? It's warn. Uh, the boot to larn him, warn him, darn him. It, 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 it really forces the accent, right? Absolutely. Um, Tony, I agree. If Tom is a hobbit, his, uh, eluding of the troll's grasp is a little bit, uh, easier to believe. But again, verisimilitude is not really what this poem has been insisting on all the way through, right? So I've never had a huge problem with that. Um, uh, yeah, good. Uh, uh, hey, Johannes, so uh, Johannes, is it three syllables in your name? I was asking this question earlier because I talked about your question, which I'm afraid was st- while well, you were still asleep. Uh, but you can watch the recording and, and see our, our long discussion of it at the beginning. But I was asking at the time, syllables, two syllables, three syllables in your name? Just curious. Want to make sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Three. Uh, Johannes. Okay, great. Excellent. All right. Um, uh, cool. Anyway, welcome. Welcome live, having caught up with us here. Uh, it's always fun to see people uh, 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 overcoming the obstacle to entry and catching up with us live here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. Eric Hebbett seems most likely that Tom is a hobbit because it's a Sam poem. And as you point out, Sam's never even, you know, he's never been in the lands of the big people before. He would clearly be thinking of hobbits. Definitely. And then we get the final turn, right? As Tom seems to have outwitted the troll and won the comic victory. Um, only to have things turn around on him one last time. But harder than stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone. As well set your boot to the mountain's root, for the seat of a troll don't feel it. Peel it, heal it. Old troll laughed when he heard Tom groan, and he knew his toes could feel it. Um, I love the cadence of those first few lines. You notice that when Tolkien sang it, he slowed down. 
in those two lines. But harder than stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone. Um, it's uh, notice that there are lots of extra syllables there. But harder than stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone. Um, bunches of extra syllables there, right? Still very regular in its beat, um, but it those lines are kind of stretched out, right? Uh, as long as the, as well as the the open vowels, right? Um, but I also like the. Uh, we spend a lot of time focusing, well, not focusing, we often talk about alliteration, right? And of course, alliteration is a big deal. Often very noticeable, Tolkien clearly loves alliteration. Uh, and of course, given his experience with Anglo-Saxon poetry, that's hardly surprising. Um, and yet, uh, there are other things that I think we shouldn't totally forget about. So for instance, in line two of this stanza, I really love how he plays with the terminal consonantal sound, right? Troll and hill. Um, of a troll that sits in the hills alone. Uh, troll and hill don't rhyme, right? The vowels are different, the initial consonants are different, but the L's are similar at the end, and so troll and hill as well set your boot to the mountain's root, right? So that the root of the mountain is being compared uh, to the seat of the troll explicitly in the next line, Right? Um, so the connection between the fact that trolls and hills wait for it, have the same ending, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it works, right? They, they, they end those words end the same, just like the end of the troll and the end of the mountain, right? Their, their, their bases are the same. Uh, uh, they're, they're anyway, do you see what I mean? Anyway, the point is. You can see him. You could see him playing with sound in lots of different ways, not just in alliteration. Though we still see that. Though it's noticeable to me that we don't get any of that notice in these first couple lines. The only potential alliteration is between stone and sits, right? Which are those are two different lines, so it's not very it's not very close, right? But harder than stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone. Um, no alliteration, whereas the, those early lines, those, those first two lines in other stanzas, were often dense with it, right? Like munched and mumbled, uh, as we talked about before. The big boots, right? Um, oops, sorry. Went the wrong way there. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's it's interesting there. Um, so Tom wins but loses, as uh, Tony was suggesting. Um, Troll laughs when he hears Tom groan. Notice again another thing. Troll does not then therefore seize the opportunity as Tom has just injured his leg in some way, right? You know, he like 
you know, I, you know, kicks the troll and like tears his meniscus or something. I don't know exactly what happened, right? But you know, does uh, uh, does 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 poor Tom in his big boots end up with the unhappy triad in his right knee? I don't know what happens, right? Um, but uh, but in any case, right? He's injured himself in some way. You'd think that nimble Tom, who just slipped out from between the hands of the troll uh, early on, to- troll might seize this opportunity while he's uh, at least hindered right by his injury to whirl about and grab him and can carry on with the uh uh with the uh, achievement of uh of 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 fresh meat right but no now he just laughs at 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 tom right it's like the joke was on troll except the joke is really on tom and in the end it was really just that moral victory that the troll was really interested in in the first place um Ah, you're right, Eric. But some sort of injury that prevents the wearing of footwear. It could be turf toe, Tony. I like that turf toe. I'm gonna go with that. Let's go with that. Um, presumably, he he must have broken bones in his foot, right? You gotta think it's uh, as soon set your boot to the mountain's root, right? Uh, so yeah, it's tr- troll toe. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think he's definitely got some broken bones there. Um, Tom's leg is game since home he came, and his bootless foot is lasting lame. Um, by the way, y- you know the pun there? It's a, it's a delightful pun about his bootless foot, right? Um, you know the other use of the word uh, bootless? This is a wonder. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful word. My wife and I use this word all the time, actually. It's a favorite word of ours. Um, bootless means useless. Uh, like it doesn't do any good. Futile, tarlonial. That's a great uh, synonym for it. Um, uh, like we tried to help, but it was bootless. Like it's it's it uh, futile. Wonderful synonym. Um, his foot is bootless now because it's injured and probably swollen, right? Um, but uh, so it's literally bootless, but it was also futile, right? Uh, his 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 foot turned out to be bootless. Uh, as an instrument for learning the troll, right? Uh, oh, yeah, I, I, ever since I learned the word bootless, and it's one of those things, right? One of those ways, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience, where you grow up with Tolkien, um, and so there are these words that you associate with Tolkien, and then you find out something, like you learn what it really means, or you hear somebody else use it, or you were like, so like the first time. I learned, I, I heard like the other definition of bootless immediately. I'm like, the troll song, holy cow, like his bootless foot. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, Lincoln, I can imagine P.G. Wodehouse having fun with the word bootless, uh, with uh, uh, the play on bootless. Uh, that that seems right up his alley there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh I have also always loved, um, <clears throat> I've always loved the, um, so y- you get the, you know, the repetition of the rhyme scheme, right? Game came lame. Um, but the, the, the alliteration with lasting lame, lasting, you know, uh, Tom's leg is game since homie came and his bootless foot is lasting lame. Uh, lasting lame is a phrase I always just found very delightful uh, in that last line. And it's interesting because um, I... 
you know, I talked about sympathy for the troll at the beginning. And of course, Tom is the sympathetic figure at the end uh, with, you know, with a now Tom's got a gammy leg. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, his foot, his uh, his foot is lasting lame. Yeah, I don't know. I, I never really felt sympathy for for Tom. Uh, I guess because he kind of, I don't know, kind of got what he was asking for, right? Kind of got what he deserved there. Um, he was he 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 went he like made the classic blunder, right? Of comic figures, right? He he achieved his comic victory, but took it one step too far, um, and so his comic joke his final comic joke uh came back to bite him uh, as one often sees right when when uh one sees this kind of thing in uh uh in shakespeare's comedies at times right uh you know just you gotta resist the temptation to put that one final uh uh comic flourish on things right um yeah yeah um anyway with a bony bone from its owner, uh, which ever since I use I, I I discovered the other meaning of the word bootless, I often thought that the the repetition of the word boned using the word in both as a noun and as a verb, right, sort of playing on the two senses of the one word, is almost like a sort of a pointer, right, especially with the alliteration, up to bootless. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the classic example, by the way, you know who Tom reminds me of in a lot of ways? Um, in kind of minor ways, but, well, goodness, there's even like, it's even, you know, bum humor. Uh, uh, Nicholas, Hende Nicholas from the Miller's Tale, Chaucer's Miller's Tale, right? Um, he, he, is he has he's gotten the better of uh, of of the miller uh, or of the 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 carpenter right uh, John the carpenter whose wife he's sleeping with and everything um, but he has to like develop this incredibly this incredibly over ornate ornate scheme right um, where he's going to arrange these circumstances where he's going to make a complete fool out of John the carpenter and sleep with his wife in John's own bed at the same time, right? Um, and by dint of concocting this enormously overcomplicated plot, it ends up coming back and biting him in the butt, um, as it were. Uh, so, um, anyway, yeah, uh, it's um, that's that's that's. I, I think that's why. Like my instinct is not to have sympathy and any more than I feel sympathy uh for uh uh, uh for Hende Nicholas getting the red hot plowshare uh shoved up his backside uh, at the end of the Miller's tale because you know he kinda had that coming actually um but uh anyway um but we return to troll. But Troll don't care, and he's still there with the bony bone from its owner. Troll's old seat is still the same, and the bony bone from its owner. Um, <laughs> spoilers. Yeah, sorry for the Canterbury Tales spoilers. In case anyone hasn't, you know, uh, if the Canterbury Tales are 
like I, I understand, you know, when a book is newly released, right, and you haven't had a chance to read it yet, it's really hard when people spoil the ending. So, you know, if uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to read the Canterbury Tales any time in the last, you know, six hundred and twenty years, then you might, uh, you, I, I can understand how spoilers would be frustrating. Um, but <laughs> anyway, if you haven't read the Miller's Tale, you should. It's a classic, classic literature. Um, Troll is content with the old bone that he was mumbling at the beginning, right? Now the the image which was one of maybe pity, maybe modest sympathy in the first stanza is now one of smug triumph for the troll at the end, right? I still got the bone that I stole, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Elway, that's a great point, Uh how the stanzas alternate between the troll and Tom. Our sympathies also switch between the troll and Tom over the poem. Yes, this this the story here is all about the the pivots, right? Uh, it does pivot in sort of, not exactly point of view, but in point of focus, right? Between as you say, between the troll and Tom, as we go from one stanza to another, and it's not just sort of looking at things from different sides or something like that, but we're always getting these sudden reversals and uh, sudden shifts. That's the way. It's the comical shape of this whole story, right? Um, yeah, 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 good. Um, all right, it's getting late, so I'm going to stop there. Uh, we didn't get to read Paro and Podex. We'll do that quickly. I'm not, there's not too much to talk about. Most of the story is the same. Um, but we'll look at a few interesting and important points, which you'll notice are very different next time. So we'll start off with that briefly, and then we'll move on uh, with prose sections afterwards. Uh, uh, which uh, so I pr- we're totally not going to spend long on the source poem, but glad to dig into this poem. So many things in this poem that I've always taken for granted uh, that I learned tonight. I had never really... Fo- I'd always been focused on the, the rhyme shape of these stanzas because, of course, that's very it's very prominent, right? It's very hard not to be conscious uh, of the continual rhymes here. Um, but um, the alliterative shape, I think, is something that's really interesting that I feel like I learned here tonight. Um, uh, that I was really kind of paying attention to for the first time. So, and once again, you know, one of the morals of the story here is that, like, yes, that, you know, this poem is not sophisticated in one sense, right? It is it is simple. It is, uh, 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 you know, the, 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 the humor is simple. The narrative is simple. Uh, the dialect is rustic. Right, but that doesn't mean there aren't really interesting things to notice. That doesn't mean that Tolkien isn't playing with some things uh, in still some kind of complicated ways, though it's not an ornate and complicated poem. Um, yet we can see a lot of stuff going on. And Mike, I totally agree with you. Simple can be hard to pull off well. Um, so yeah, it, it's one of the things that's interesting to uh, to look at. Did Sam get the others to sing along? Do I think? Um, that's a that's a great question. I don't, um, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Um, uh, by the end, yes, you think, Mike? Well, maybe, maybe. I wouldn't rule it out. Um, 
Pippin is clearly the most likely to be singing along, right? Uh, Got to be. Yeah, Bruce was just thinking the same thing. Tony says, not Aragorn. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Uh, but uh, Pippin almost certainly. Yeah. Um, Fourth Thoughtless, that is the other p- possibility, right? That everyone is so shocked. Uh, you know, People are surprised by Sam's song and surprised and delighted that they don't... Uh, uh, they miss the audience participation bits. I can definitely see that too. Um, uh, t- Tora Marthen, I do agree. Uh, if I were if I were filming this scene, I would I would definitely have Aragorn smiling. Right? You don't want Aragorn to be all like we are not amused. Right? We don't want him to be uh, uh, you know above being pleased uh, or to look snooty or, or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't really see him, you know, uh, piping up with the, um, uh, with the, the audience participation words either. All right. Um, <laughs> cool. Yes. Elway, if the others were even half wise, uh, they wouldn't have missed the opportunity to sing. Totally agree. Elway, of course, playing on Sam's name. Sam wise means half wise or half wit. Uh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, thank you for joining me tonight. So this ends our book discussion here tonight. We're going to shift over to our field trip. Before we do, just a quick uh, uh, reminder. I think I announced this last week, but I just wanted to remind folks: um, when you're if you're uh, doing your holiday shopping, don't forget Signum this year. Uh, we have a, a special on our gift certificates for our anytime audit tuition. So if you want to give the gift of of a Signum course, if you've got somebody, you know, on your gift list uh, who you have a really hard time thinking of cool things to give them, um, but like, you know, access to uh, one of the really cool courses in our course archives uh, make for a pretty cool and different kind of gift, uh, which I know that many people would enjoy. So just go to SignumUniversity.org on our homepage. You can see the link there to the form uh, to sign up for our uh, anytime audit program, and you can get our gift certificates there at our short-term special price uh, for the holidays. So, just wanted to remind everybody about that before we went. Thanks, everybody. So, I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Feel free to join us over at Twitch uh, for our field trip tonight. Uh, and I'm going to say goodbye up there. Thanks, everybody. All right. <laughs> the drunkle design is on Redbubble now. <laughs> yeah. It's just a saucy text design, but it's there now. <laughs> excellent. excellent. Yeah. There's also some of the other Mythgard stuff I put up, like the your mother was a seagull and your father drives a flying boat. And, right. And uh, the one of Wigan going, don't loot the corpse. Don't forget to loot the corpse. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, actually, okay. So the, the, the drunkle shirt should have an arrow, right? Yeah. Uh, I'll get there. <laughs> I like, you know, and you can, you, you can have like the arrow pointing up, right. Or you could have the arrow pointing to the side. I, I do have one that I have, I have one that me and my brother came up with that has a finger, but it's a distinctly Elizabethan looking cuff on the hand. And it says, I'm with Lackwit. I'm with, I'm with, yes, exactly. That, 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 that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> The drunkle shirt. I like it. Okay, cool. All right, so we for our field trip tonight, we're going to head back to the Troll Shaws and continue our explorations over there. Um, we have almost completed, not quite completed, but almost completed um, the uh, 
the explorations of the places explicitly mentioned in the text. I think we have found all the places in the text so far. Um, uh-huh. But, um, yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so let's take off. Let's go. I think we're gonna have to do the Oscar Ruth route again, due to the. Yeah, it's just like it, it occurred to me. I got Thorn had stable last week, but that was a different server. <laughs> so. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and anyway, isn't it only a slow horse anyhow from Oscar Ruth? Yeah. Yeah. Slow ride. So, so. we might as well. We might as well might just gallop, and then we won't leave people behind too. So. Yeah. 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 Brick so says, Oscar, you, you want an I'm with Sam, an, an I'm with Samwise shirt? Yeah, uh, that is copyright infringement, and Redbubble frowns upon this, yeah. or Warner Brothers frowns upon it, and then Redbubble takes it down because uh, Samwise so. is uh, tagged. So yeah, a lot of our our jokes are fine as long as they don't mention anything, because uh, yeah. a lot right. of that is still property of Warner Brothers and now Amazon. So yeah, yeah, no, the trademarks are are real. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, however, you can't trademark Sam. Uh, so, um, I would, uh, I could do a Sam shirt. That's you a, could do a Sam shirt. once again, I got a list as long as my, uh, yeah. browser history. Yeah. So, so, um, so, uh, a, a shirt that I would really want. I really want a, I really want a Sam for mayor political campaign t-shirt. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll I see what Sam I can do about mayor. that. I got a whole year to do that. Don't I? So. Yeah, and then you know it's like some kind of uh, there's so many different uh, campaign slogans you know that Sam for mayor could use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so back to the beginning because I was really excited when you're talking about the folklore of Farmer Maggot and Tom Bombadil. Tom I don't know if I told. Yeah, I don't know if I told you this story, but when my oldest daughter was about eight years old, she was starting to get into hobbity stuff like that. And I read to her the Tom Bombadil goes a boating thing. Right. And for the next few months, all bedtime stories had to be framed with the whole story of this is what Farmer Maggot and Tom Bombadil got up to this week. (laughs) Really? Yeah. She wanted to hear all about Tom Bombadil. Still one of her favorite characters, which, you know. The the continuing adventures, right? So you had to make up the continuing adventures of Tom Bombadil? Uh, yeah, of just you know the the other forest creatures and, and spirits that Tom kept getting into trouble. The bits of nature he'd have to to wag away and the you know chasing barrowites away and stuff like that. She really liked all that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's cool. That that's that's. I mean, and actually, you know, that that is by itself even you know a really lovely kind of. Um, I won't say confirmation exactly. That would be too strong, but uh, certainly some good supporting evidence for, you know, that kind of story being the sort of thing that catches on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that that, uh, it, it certainly makes it much, much easier to imagine that there would be a, uh, um, a culture of that, right? Like, I think we're, I think we're good. We can take mm-hmm. yep. um, But yeah, with uh, Bruce's yeah. comment, it made me start thinking, yeah, maybe like the sort of stuff I was saying 
to, to Sophie was would be like the kind of stories that you hear back there. You know, here's a, another story I, I might have heard that happened to Farmer Maggot and his right. friend. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, Headcanon accepted. <laughs> yeah. So great idea, Bruce. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 great. I mean, it, it was it was one of those things. I have to admit, like when I first saw like my first reaction to the beginning, I'm like, "Hang on a second, no, this isn't going to become an argument for like that." It's really Tom Bombadil, you know, just like the uh-huh. the comparison that, that I made, right? Where like, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I I always, you know, I, I will occasionally, you know, meet like the people who will really try to convince me that like the Arkenstone is obviously, you know, Mithros's Silmaril that like went into the earth and as you know as then like somehow emerges in the lonely mountain and I'm like, like no no yeah. it is not it cannot be um, anyway so at, 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 at the very beginning of Bruce's comment I was like we're not going there. Are we like we're not really going to try to maintain that it's actually Tom Bombadil, um, uh, that it's like demonstrably depicting Tom Bombadil in that song that Sam is himself consciously imagining Tom Bombadil and putting him in the song, um, but uh, but then of course it ended up going somewhere way cooler and more interesting than that. Yeah, um, it sort of turned into you know the Hobbit version of you know the monomyth kind of. The, you know the the cultural archetypes we have the jacks the the yes yeah the johnnies the Yvonne's characters you know this are yeah yeah exactly. hans all the hans characters you know yes yes exactly i mean it's just i i that idea is the thing that's most appealing to me especially since first of all tom bombadil wouldn't even be the kind of character like the stories about tom bombadil you wouldn't think would be the kinds of stories. He's not like Jack the Giant Killer, you know. Like he's no. not. Like, he's not a character who does anything. Uh, he's really. too passive. Exactly. He's way too passive. He's fun, but he's passive. And so, you wouldn't think that. So, but but again, like his attitude, like the whole demeanor of Tom, would be the sort of the core of the story. Um, but mm-hmm. just as you were pointing out right there, with things like Jack and Johnny and things like that, like the there are different kinds of associations that are built with these names, right? Like they, they become, they they have a kind of iconic weight um, because they get associated, but, but it's not always the same. It's not always heroism, right? Sometimes it is Um, like spunky underdog heroism from Jack, you know, the Jack, the giant killer ethos, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. But is this where I always lose the road? Yes, it is. Yes, because that bush, <laughs> this bush, is what always throws me off. Did, yeah, was this I bush stick always to you, here? Like, this time, yes. This, it, well, I think it was in one of the newer in the newer updates. This wasn't yes. an original part of the road because I have no memory. Like when I first came to the Trolls Jaws, I have no memory of getting lost here. This uh-huh. looks like someone is actively attempting to conceal the road here. Mm. I can't approve. It's probably the elves. Probably yeah. the elves. Growing bushes in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. So, hang on, checking where we are. Okay, <laughs> looking at the map. Don't want to go too far. There's the stone. Yeah. Stone with it. Doesn't the stone have something on it? No. Is it just a white stone? 
No, there's a quest involved with finding the stone. Yeah, well, because this is where like you're supposed to go to the stone and hang a right, right? Yeah. In order to find. To, yeah, uh, to Berchen's yeah. Yeah, exactly. camp. It's like bang a right when you hit the white rock, is as I is as, as I recall. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, but um, but yeah. So th- that whole idea that this kind of ethos would become associated with the word Tom through kind of indistinct stories of the, you know, kind of funny and spunky. It's certainly goofy tone. enough. Yeah, goofy, definitely. Definitely. Reminds me of some of the dumber Shakespeare stories. Right. Well, even the language, too. Although, um, I noticed with the troll, they give him a lot of northern slang, like e now and the now is is a very northern sort of expression. They were using these in thous up to mid-20th century. Some still do. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well... I guess the trolls are kind of from the north, right? Yeah. Every planet has a north. Um, well, also, that's where there's no sun out there, is there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, I was indulging in an obscure Doctor Who re- reference because I. No, no, totally I, it was Christopher Eccleston, yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. Why do you sound like you're from the north, then? <laughs> Lots of planets so have a north. Lancashire. Um, most planets have a north. Eric, I'm sorry, I misquoted it. See, I'm still a noob, right? But I'm getting better. I'm getting better. <laughs> By the way, I'm in year three of Tom Baker now in my oh. watching of the classic Who. Fun diddly on. I like that. I need to get back on it. My kids have taken a sidestep for anime right now. Uh huh. Right. Okay. Middle school, you know. All right, you got okay, it. Right, here's the next white rock where you're supposed yeah. to turn. Oh, this is the one I thought was wearing like a hat. He's got like a, he's got a loincloth with like a beauty pageant sash on it. Yeah, yeah, he's got the one shoulder sash, right? Well, he's, got, yes. he's got a little strap over the right shoulder too. Yeah. Oh, and uh, he's got like a dreadlock beard. It's got it's a forked beard. Yeah, and he's got he's got a barrel hanging from that sash. He's got a little like. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got a so that's like the uh, troll drinking. equivalent of a hip flask there. Well, they were drinking beer from the barrels. Right. Well, from jugs, which they were dipping well, in the barrels. Be, yeah, yeah. This is this is a cask. I think it's yeah. not quite a butt. Yeah. Little, little <laughs> not quite a butt. We can't. We can't. So you're saying we can't uh, make butt, another butt yeah, joke here? Yeah, more butt here? jokes. There we go. Yeah, yeah mother exactly. Butt. Right. <laughs> 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 no, that's where the word butt comes from. Comes from a type of barrel. Like a type of barrel, right? Exactly. That's what they mean when they say a butt load. They mean a butt of wine. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, yes, yes. Like the kind that prince was drowned in. Exactly. Yes. Uh, uh, who was the butt of Malmsey? Clarence, butt of Malmsey, wasn't it? Clarence. That's right. Duke of yes, Clarence, that's butt right. Of, in the, drowned in butt of Malmsey. Malmsey um, wine. That's right. Yes. Yes. Um, my Shakespeare troop friends will be happy I brought that up (laughs) (laughs) Uh, cool okay so I'm not remembering are there um, right there are ruins up there on the hill there are none down here there's bears right no there's bears it's just chock full of bears bear caves yeah I think we can go around that yeah yeah 
All right. Okay. Gazebo on the hill. Yeah. Oh, we're looking at the gazebo. Uh-huh. Rudaran gazebo. Yep. Rudaran indeed. Okay. Um, Man, I got killed by so many bears on this gazebo. Just run out at me and just knock me down. I'm a little nervous, even though I'm high enough level. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these are these are we, gloomy. These we, are dark gray. We don't usually see. So this is one of those big, huge scepter of Anuminus with the two Rudaran sort of crowns on either side. Yeah, we often see on the ends of walls and things. I don't remember seeing it rounded yeah. in a gazebo before. This is yeah, this very... wasn't as much as gazebos; more like a rotunda that was connected to a building. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what we've mostly seen these as. Exactly. I don't see anything else around. It looks like a freestanding gazebo, or at least a tower, perhaps. Yeah, Open nothing tower, until those ruins yeah. on the hill up there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you could see how. I mean, if. Uh, you cleared out some of these trees. This would have been a nice view. Hard to see. There's lots of, uh, you know, it's a obscured position. But if you kind of get around the trees, yeah, you know, it's. I, I really don't see anything. Yeah. Um. And so there were. Uh. Uh. I think uh, it was Harangil on the. Uh, discussion board was complaining about my over analysis of uh, uh, of the ruins and things uh, in the Lone Lands. And uh, first of all, uh, do I come to like big conclusions on very small amounts of evidence? Of course I do. What's the Duh. fun of not coming to conclusions just because we don't have much evidence? What are we going to wait for further archaeological study? Right? Are we going to be able to like uh, you know come back with like superior equipment and and uh, uh, and, and uncover more data? Like this is all the data we got, man. So like, what else yeah, are we going to do with it? But come to talk about conclusions. Exactly. Uh, and also, there was someone who was talking like, uh, well, like, we already know where the boundaries are. Like, so, like, why speculate about where the boundaries are when, like, we're told where the boundaries are in, uh, uh, you know, in the book? Well, yeah, of course, the book has one sentence on this, right? But that's the kind of fun thing about the, the whole adaptation project of the game is not just that it does different things or new things or messes stuff up or however you want to talk about it, um, but that they make the 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 story world which is in a sense of course static even the narrative is static in the sense that it's you know it's sort of you know narrowly focused on the one story and always tells the mm -hmm. same story every time right um but yeah. to make that world into a dynamic world that you can explore and look at and and of course to fill in blanks which are not filled in not you know uh not omitted yeah. not accidentally left behind or or something like that but so i mean yes he gives generally what the boundaries were at one point you know the primary boundaries uh of the kingdoms of cardolan and rudauer and uh and arthodyne but what's interesting is that uh we uh uh to see what the uh, things that they suggest, you know, what the what the the placement of the ruins suggest, we can kind of walk through the world here and get a, a much more dynamic sense of like how did this play out? Like, I love the yeah. way that we're getting, especially here in the Trollshaws, seeing all these Rudaran ruins and Rudaran ruins of different kinds, like this one here. 
uh, of different kinds than we were seeing, say, in the North Downs. Think of that fortress right near the nearest one to Weathertop, right? The nearest Rudown ru- yeah. uh, ru- ruin to Weathertop, the one with all the, the half-orcs in it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's, this is of a very different kind, right? And so we can kind of stroll through these lands and begin to see, to kind of get a feel for like the way the civil war played out, you know, like for, you know, you get yeah. kind of a taste of the whole character and history of the realm of, of root hour. Right. And that's de- cool. That's really neat. The developers had to make a timeline. Absolutely. That's, that's Absolutely. an impressive undertaking. Yeah, and 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 even if it wasn't even something they were uh, undertaking, you know, maybe they didn't plan that. Maybe they didn't think about that. I don't know for sure. Um, but <laughs> well, I'm not bothered one way or the other. Exactly. You can make a timeline of it, and it works, and it's cool. And that's the fun thing here, right? Uh, so anyway, yeah. so this is why I'm uh, obviously could not be less phased uh, by <laughs> lack of evidence. Though the one, the most, the coolest point. Uh, in that, uh, in uh, Hyrungil's post, though, I will say is that he was pointing out a potential, not conflict exactly, but a data point that I missed in my Arthodyne to the south of the road, Rudour to the north of the road observations, is that I think he said underground, in the dwarf bits, in the lone lands, that, which are south of the road, right? Um, uh-huh. uh, we were only looking at the above ground ruins, but in the dwarf... Places underground, he said there were some rude oh, symbols. Yes, there. the dwarven, the one the dwarf was standing in front of. Yeah, exactly. We didn't go yeah. underground there. And he said there were some. We, we did for a part because it was connected to the stuff that was on the hill where the dower heads right. were. Right, right, yeah. And but very the other briefly. half where, the, where the, the, the agony towers are. Right, right. Um, but anyway, I thought it was cool that there were some Rudown yeah. symbols. I mean, first of all, it suggests, as one would expect, that uh, frontiers change from time to time, that, you know, there was, like, an incursion. Um, and especially at that point in the Lone Lands, like, to go back to the... Let me go back to the map here for a second. Let's click on the Lone Lands map here. Okay, so the dwarf part is right here in the middle, right south of uh, Nine Eneve here, as it's given north mm-hmm. of the road there. Uh, so, in other words, right here in the middle uh, of uh, this whole section. So, this gives us this um, this sense, right, that at one point the Rudowns made a successful foray down into the south in order to like cut off the Arthodinians and to uh, and to 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 you know, increase to, uh, to sort of break this cordon. Right. I love that. Right. Or maybe they sneaked down. Maybe there was this like literally underground, um, uh, you know, sort of like secret, uh, spy route, uh, you know, hideout, you know, a bandit hideout of the Rudarans there in Arthodyne territory. Who knows? Um, but either way, either one is a really fun story to think of. And again, that's what I love about the way, the landscape in Lotro works. Um, they pay plenty enough attention to uh, to the history that Tolkien gives in order to construct these uh, these lands in a way which make enough sense that they they suggest narratives like this. Right? They suggest stories, specific stories that fit within the overall schemas that Tolkien gave, which is really fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, once again, props to you guys, developers. Exactly. Exactly. As always. Oh no! Wait. More elvish bushes. Wait. The road has vanished. Help! I'm lost no, again. No, it's a, just, just go around the base. Just yeah, keep following okay. the line of the. But still, man. like, man, this is like a malicious, 
band of bushes just thrown up across the road. A shrubbery. Yeah, so I think this is this is this was def these were definitely part of the cosmetic <laughs> makeover that Trollshaws did. Yeah. Cuz I mean, you know, back when I was doing my uh back when I was doing my um my what do you call it? My uh completionist Trollshaws uh maneuvers. I came up here a lot, of course. Uh so Yeah, that's right. I would remember those bushes. How can I be I have size? no memory of these bushes. These <laughs> those bushes were so not there. Okay. I got some serious walls, but these serious walls are seriously in the middle of nowhere. On the outer perimeter where you would expect to find walls, we just have a colonnade. Now again, this is a fairly you know, a good position in the sense that it's got natural steep cliffs okay. here that it's on, so you don't necessarily need walls. But in this way, it's like those, the same phenomenon that we were seeing up, um, you know, where the worms were and those, you know, all those trolls up on that cliff hill in the middle of um, the North Troll Shaws up there. Yeah, it looks like some of the battlements fell down to the ravine, too. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's the bear's tower now. Right. Right. Yeah, so again, this begin Now, here, this looks kind of uh, Tinadir-ish, right? Uh-huh. Um, sort of hidden fortress city from this side. It makes a little bit more sense that the walls would be thrown up facing the North Trollshaws, right? So just in case you did get, presumably, trolls and things like that, they would want their city more secure from mm -hmm. that side. But if you have walls on this side, you ruin the view, right? Much better yeah. to get this attractive autumnal view, uh, especially, you know, with the... What, what time of day is it? Uh, right? Uh, yes, the, the sun is about to rise, right? Exactly. It's, four it's dawn. dawn. Yeah. So we're now getting the uh, the uh, that well that's of course rosy fingered dawn that we're seeing creeping <laughs> over the uh, the sky there uh, in the southeast. Yeah. So um, obviously you want to be able to look out on the rosy fingered dawn uh, if you're living in here in Thornhut in the olden days, uh, so you don't make walls on that side. Yeah, makes perfect but, sense. Uh also, you know, depending on how, what the trees are doing at the time, it helps you keep an eye on the Fort of Brunin, too. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. As we were saying, uh, you... Well, it's hard to imagine. Well, the elves wouldn't clear-cut the land, but there's not to say that the Rudarans wouldn't have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't... Also, really... wintertime, wintertime would give you a better vantage. It's true. Though there are enough evergreens that it would still be obscured, I think. And anyway... That's true. What's the direction of the fort? Let's see. Right now I'm facing the direction of the fort. Oh, no, there's a hill in the way. I don't think... Or is that the hill on the other side of the fort? Maybe it is. I think maybe it is. Okay. Yeah, we're definitely looking at some foothills of uh, the mountain ranges. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right, cool. I love how the dwarves are set up in this like walled-in little enclosure over here. Like, right, like we can have our own <laughs> camp. Agoraphobic. <laughs> and, and 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 pretend that we're not surrounded by elves. Right, this is uh, yeah. This is, this is kind of fun. 
keeps that stench of soap away. <laughs> and here, oh here boy. we go. One of my biggest fanboy moments. <laughs> Eladon and Elro here. So Elro here has got some pretty big boots, you have to say. <laughs> oh, both of them are really... I think both of them the, are too smart to kick making, a troll. Making with the riding boots. Oh, yeah. Lots and way too experienced. Ooh. Looking at the back of his gauntlets. Those are pretty cool. No, I'm missing that. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And notice they're, 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 uh, they're tapered or whatever. They don't look anything like all of the guards we've seen in Rivendell right. so far. Right. And Druid's Fire says the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I like the knot work on his. Yeah, I really. On his tuning. I, I like the fact that, and then of course we see this often with with elves, their their clothes are functional but ornate, right? They don't look like fops, you know. They don't look like they're like in fancy dress. Um, yeah. You know, they're in belted tunics, and you know, both of them wearing you know leather gauntlets up to the elbow and leather boots up to the knees. You know, they look like they. Yeah could leap into the saddle. They, you know, look like they could travel on foot. Um, they're not armored, obviously. Mm-hmm. They are wearing sort of fetching They might be capes. underneath their shakards or something like that. They might have yeah. some leather or something under it. Right, they are wearing capes, but they, but they have hoods. Do they both have hoods? Yep, they both have yep. hoods. So those are also yep. practical garments that would help to keep off rain and things like that. So again, you know, it's, uh, uh, they're, Awfully pretty mm-hmm. and colorful. Not exactly designed to blend in, especially Elro here over there. Like you know, yeah, Mr. Yeah, Elro. Mr. Yeah, Mr. Powder Blue over there is not exactly after Labor Day. Yeah, not exactly <laughs> going to be blending into the to the bushes here. Um, Eladon would do a little bit better with that, with his greens and browns, perhaps. Yeah, Even he's though. in his fall. He's in his fall pumpkin colors here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so but yeah, not... you're right. I don't see any jewelry to get caught on anything. None of these guys are going to go the way that's, you know, that, that <laughs> they're not going to get their hair tangled in anything. In right. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> even their even their hairstyles, hair pulled back sensibly, right? It's not going to go flying around. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Men of action and yet of a certain refinement as well, right? Definitely. Definitely. Metro action man. Yes, exactly. And roasting meat, standing around a campfire, which is actively roasting meat. Well, if you're going to be surviving in the wild, you need protein. It's true. I know that some people sort of question, and even Lotro kind of plays into this some with the way that when you're playing an elf, you can't target animals. To kill them, but I think that's more of uh, I think that's more of a courtesy because you know you're 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 more aware of the animals where a human will just step on a bunny rabbit and be like, uh oh, <laughs> right, yeah. But I mean, like you can't, you know. So like, if you're playing a human or hobbit yeah. character, you can target like the local rabbits and and kill them if you choose. Yeah, but you don't get anything for it. It's no, you don't get mean. anything for it. But you, but the point <laughs> is, 
that Lotro developers made elves incapable of doing that. Like elves physically can't target those animals. Um, did you ever notice that? Oh, I, I, I noticed I couldn't target them accidentally. I did not know if I could not, could I, or could I, not I, intentionally hit them. I, I don't think you can. Uh, you can't, I, I think it is physically impossible. I mean, maybe they can be caught in an AOE effect or something like that. Um, yeah, they'll set off your traps for sure. Yeah, but you can't, you, I, as an elf character, you can't target, you can't like just go with your, you know, draw your sword and go over and hack up a bunny. Um, whereas you can do that if you're a human or a hobbit. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, 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 so even in that way, you know, Lotro is kind of playing into the like gentle elves who would not harm, you know, other living creatures and things. Um, needlessly. Uh, yeah. Okay. I see. All right. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, uh, Tora Marthen clarifies, you can click target them, the animals, and you can emote them, but you can't tab target them, which is what I always noticed playing an elf. Yes, that's, uh, that's and, it. And they are immune to all your attacks. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I so, mean, I, yeah I, it sounds more like you can't harm them needlessly. Right. It, I think exactly. that's what it falls into. That's why these guys are chowing down on probably, you know, a rabbit or a boar or something out there. I'm going to yeah. say it's probably one of those piggies that were hawking. Yeah, sure. No, and it's interesting. I mean, it's it's. I I don't I don't like object to that, but it does. I mean, I have often talked with you know Tolkien readers who sort of assume that all elves are vegetarians. You know, um, that like elves wouldn't kill things and hobbits wouldn't kill things. Well, like no, they 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 do right. They do. They um they hunt. Yeah. They hunt. You know, yeah. the Elven King goes out hunting a lot in the Hobbit. Uh, that's yeah. when Bilbo's able to sneak You're out. Chasing after. a dang deer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was a major plot point in the Hobbit. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, no, they, they definitely hunt and they definitely eat meat. Um, but I still, I think it's kind of, uh, gutsy for that reason to have, uh, Eladon and Elroy here standing around, a uh, campfire it's, it's with also meat the actively between... turning on a spit. It's also the difference between survivalists and people who, you know, are at home with their larders and can pick and choose. Right. Exactly. Um, Brick Tales, yes. Baron is the one who is explicitly um, described as being vegetarian because of his active, like, friendship with animals. Like, he, he, uh-huh. he becomes the ally of the beasts, and the beasts become his friends. And so, yes, Baron is a vegetarian. Um, but, uh, and Bjorn, Bjorn, we know. And Bjorn, Bjorn is a vegetarian, yes. Um, uh, yes, we don't see him eating any meat. Um, I mean, again, it's he's has beasts which are his friends, um, whom he's not going to eat. Would that mean that he would not kill deer? I'm not 100% sure that Bjorn would not kill, uh, kill deer, but they're not described as eating meat in his household, certainly. Yeah, everything he offered was a vegetarian option. Yes, bread and for, for honey, uh, principally, yeah. And yeah. he said, and he's he specifically told me he doesn't eat his, what, it, what doesn't eat or kill his friends or something like that? Yeah. Right, exactly. Like but. It, but he is pretty fierce and not necessarily, I'm not convinced that yeah. all animals are his friends necessarily. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know what he does in his bear form. Yeah. And that's exactly. just it. It all comes down to physiognomy. We don't have a textbook to describe how elves derive power from food. For all right. we know, they photosynthesize and it's not covered <laughs> because it's not necessary to know this. <laughs> right. 
Well, obviously they wouldn't because the sun was invented long after they came around. So, right. yeah, but, cool. but still, yeah, it's like until I have a textbook knowing how they convert, you know, food to energy in their small intestine, we can't assume anything. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Boomful suggests that they're powered by starlight. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Um, well, um, let's. Um, uh, I think it's it's late. It's after midnight now. Uh, so we yeah. should uh, uh, we should we should let folks go. Getting to Thornhod and and uh, getting to meet uh, Eldon and Row here was our big goal today. We'll head up to the. Uh, 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 up in Nantornith to the north of here today, we'll at least do the uh, the necropolis, which we thought we were near to before, but are actually near to now. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, and then we'll we'll head off. Uh, uh, we'll, so we'll finish the parts up north, and then head creep ever closer to Rivendell. I think we'll get to do the southern parts down here in Talbruinen before we actually get to Rivendell, but. Um, All right. But yeah, pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Appreciate it. And uh, 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 see you guys one week from tonight. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Bye, everyone. See you next week. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.